Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. You're rocking with the most awesome missile. The Carl Nelson Show. You're rocking with the most awesome missile. All right, let's go. And Grand Rising Wake Up Squad, thanks for continuing to start your day with us. Later, New York activist Charles Barron will continue our commemoration of Black August. This time, uh, Charles Barron will look at a, do a salute to Matula Shakur. Before we hear from Charles Barron, though, Maryland State Public Defender Natasha D'Artique will discuss the increased incarceration of our, our black children. But to get us started uh, this morning, Griot, Professor Small is here. Professor Small, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, Brother Carl. Yeah, How are you doing, sir? Hiding off a cold, but I'm wow. I'm winning. Good. Uh, be careful with that. There's a lot of stuff going around out there these days, and, and people don't know what it is. So, uh, you know, I tell people always be, 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 be aware of what's going around in the air out there because there is something out there. You know, they're just not telling us what yeah, it is. But we, we can't do nothing about it except breathe the damn air. So, <laughs> <I don't even laughs> ain't that the truth? Right. Yeah. But uh, Professor Small, you just got back from Africa. Uh, if you can tell us about yeah, your trip and, and then let's go into what's going on in, in this year. Yeah, the trip, we had a trip to Ghana. It was about 28 of us. It was one of the most beautiful trips I've had. It was a good group of people, um, ages ranging from, I guess, 23 to 78. So it was a good spread of elders, middle-aged, business people, retirees, students. Uh, we toured five regions in Ghana, the Accra region, which is the capital, and visited the Du Bois Center, and the Krumah Memorial, which has been redone in an extraordinary fashion, a, a memorial park for the first president. Uh, we visited the western region with Nana Kwabana and Ketsia, whose family hosted Dr. Clark and hosted uh, Maya Angelou, lived with them while she was there. Uh, his uncle was one of Nkrumah's partners in the very early part of the movement. We actually visited the house where Nkrumah and them would meet to plot taking over the government and where they were all arrested. And we made that a place of, of pilgrimage for ourselves. Uh, in that same community, the group was given African names and an official African ceremony under the guise of Nanakwaban and Ketia, who is the king of Esukado. Um, we had a wonderful time in the western region. And then we moved on to the Elmina region and visited the first slave dungeon in Africa, which is always the most emotional part of the trip when people, most of the people who went, this was their first time. 
And so this was a very emotional trip for them. And uh, the second state, that second station we moved to the uh, Cape Coast region and visited the largest slave dungeon in Africa. Um, and again, that's an emotional trip to see the dungeons where they have the women, where they have the men, where so many of our ancestors died and lost their lives waiting for slave ships to take them away, never to see home again. Um, we went into what is called Kakum Park, which is a beautiful park they have with a canopy walk. Uh, to, to be walking above the, 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 the trees and looking down hundreds of feet. I didn't do it this time. I think I, I've done it enough, but everybody enjoyed that. There was a beautiful museum there. And in the Esotado region, we went to probably, it's called the Busia Museum, one of the best museums I've ever seen in the presentation of African history and culture. Uh, the owner of um, an African TV station in Ghana uh, built this magnificent museum that everybody needs to see. It's in the western region called Busia Museum. They need to go there. He covers the history starting from ancient Kemet right up to the lynchings in black America. Um, he has everybody in there and is presented well. And the people who take you around presented well. And then we went up to the, the Volta region, uh, the Akasumbo Dam, to see one of the largest earthen dams in the world that powers Ghana, and Ghana is able to sell electricity to much of the surrounding region. And we spent a day on the lake and boating. Um, we had a cruise that took us up the Volta Lake for about four hours. That was very relaxing and very entertaining. They had a live band playing the entire time. We had food all day long. Then we stopped at an island, to, um, which was an animal preserve, and spent some time there. Um, then back to the, the capital and the, the botanical gardens. I shouldn't have missed that. We went to the extraordinary botanical gardens and the herbal gardens in Ghana, which was fantastic. And then back to the capital um, to relax and shop at the market and stuff like that. But everybody enjoyed themselves. And through all of this, I gave lectures. And my tour guide, uh, Yao, who's an extraordinary historian, gave lectures. So, And we took questions, too. So people had 14 days of history and culture and, and visuals. And then we did take one night out of the town, hung out at a couple of clubs, did some dancing and other <laughs> stuff, and we were good. So All right. it was a fantastic tour. All right, let me ask you, this is seven after the top of the hour. Uh, did you go to the Pram Pram section near near Accra? Because uh, some, some of my friends in, in Ghana are listening, and they, they, they said their complaint is that it's been too Americanized. I, don't, I think that's foolishness. What does Americanized mean? Mean that black Americans happen to decide to go back home, and what are they going to take back with them except the culture they got? So that's a foolish term and a foolish concept. You're not going to take something you don't have. Um, and we didn't ask to come here. We didn't ask to be imbued in this culture. This is who we are, what we are. We take it wherever we go, and after, and anywhere we go, there's over sixty thousand African Americans living in Ghana. Yeah. 
hundreds of thousands of Ghanaians living in America. Do we say where the Ghanaians live in America and they live in their own communities? Do we say it's gotten too Ghanaianized? So that's that that's that's black folks trying to pretend and play games and then become so Africanized they can recognize something becoming Americanized. When you're referring to black Americans, yeah. the people ought to stop it. Get right. it together. Yeah, another division move. That's what that is. That's what it appears to be. But let's let's move over to Niger. No, let's let's stay on that for one second, Carl. Okay, go ahead. What are we going to take back? It's like people, they did that same thing with Liberia, and it ended up in the slaughter of the African-American descendant population in Liberia. The African-Americans are Africans. We were sold out of our land. We have a right to return any damn time we want to, any way we want to. And according to international protocol, we should still be considered refugees with the right of return. And all things owed us, indigenous land and anything else, should be returned to us. We shouldn't be going home buying any land anywhere. And what are we going to take back with us except the culture we've developed here? We didn't ask for this. But we got it, and that's who we are. Is there anything else that describes it in a negative context need to be stepping back? Because we are the ones that stepping forward. So I say that got, those who have those sentiments and thoughts, and then we can go to Nigeria. Right. Well, before you do that, though, just got two thumbs up from one of our listeners out there in the Volta region. Uh, it, it, it Thank mentioned, you. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, two thumbs up because you know we got quite a few listeners out there in Ghana listening to us each and every morning. So uh, for mm-hmm. our time, it's, it's uh, late morning. They're almost going on midday. People in all the world, but. But the Ghanaians yeah. know how much I love Ghana, you know. Oh, yeah. Ghana's and it seems, yeah, let me ask you about that, because you know, I've been there several times as well, and it's, it seems like they're they're more open than other, other African states. Did, did you find that? Because I know you've been to other uh, African countries as well. They seem to be more welcoming, if you will. If you, if, oh, Ghana, you know, so to much, absolutely. And I think a lot of that has to do with the first president in Kuma studying here at Lincoln University living in Harlem, acculturating with us, and he knew the African-American population. And so when Nkrumah went home, and when he became the president, the prime minister of the country, or the president of the country, he invited African-Americans to come and work with them, and many went. You know? Hopefully we haven't lost uh, uh, Professor Small. Sound like his phone dropped there, 11 after the top day out. But we're going to get into some, uh, we're going to talk politics, too. But we're going to find out what's going on in the Francophone nations and also what's going on in Niger. You know, we've seen the, the, the coup that took place in Niger. That's been in the news for quite some time. And we're trying to figure out what's really going on. What, what's the AU doing, the African Union? Because they've been threatening uh, to, you know, put down the coup or threatening to, to attack. And then ECOWAS, another group uh, out there, is, is threatening also to get involved and one of the things they've been saying, though, they don't want Europeans, they don't want the French, they don't want the, the Brits or the United States to get involved in that. It's an African problem, and, and it's got to be solved by Africa. But so far, uh, and now the, the, the new uh, the issue that's come in, there's a Brzozian. You've, you've seen, seen that. It was uh, Putin's right-hand man, and he's been involved in Africa. He's been involved in the Central African region, and also he's been involved, they say, in Benin. And a lot of these uh, 
these African leaders, uh, you know, he's uh, he's providing uh, providing weapons for them, and some people are accusing him of providing weapons in this overthrow. But I'll let Professor Smalls, uh, uh, you know, explain that. But he he died in a plane crash. I said all of that to say that you probably saw that on the news. Or it's just, uh, you know, he was the one who actually threatened uh, a coup against Putin, and some some people are wondering if it, how he how he managed to stay alive. But Professor Small. Can you yes, explain sir. to us what? Yeah, can you explain to us what was going on in this year? Well, we know that the French was one of the worst colonizers in Africa, and still is. And the French had control of virtually, and still do, fifteen states, fifteen countries in Africa, which is referred to as the Francophone states in West Africa. Niger being one of them, Burkina Faso being another, Ivory Coast, Mali. Chad, etc. But what has happened is, is, is Burkina Faso, Niger, Chad, not Chad, uh, Mali, and you remember Guinea never went with the French deal. Guinea broke away under Sekou Toure in, in the 1960s. And what the French did when Guinea would not go along with that 11-point plan they laid out for them, which I'll explain in a second, the French took everything out of Guinea. They took the toilets out. They put cement in the sewage system so they couldn't use it. They took all the vehicles out. They destroyed the electric grid. They destroyed the hospital. Everything. And I had and they're doing the same thing now in Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso has wow, wow. massive. Hold, hold yeah, hold that thought right there. This is getting interesting, uh, Professor Small. But we got to take a quick break and check out the traffic and weather for our communities this morning. It's 14 minutes after the top of the hour, folks. Our guest is Grill, uh, Professor James Small. He's giving us an update on his recent trip to Africa, and also he's going to explain to us what's going on in in uh, Niger and some of the other Afri uh, francophone countries on the continent. You want to join this conversation? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes at 14 after the top of the hour, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the time of the hour. Call up a couple of your friends or wake them up and tell them that Professor Smalls are on the radio. They'd appreciate it. I'm sure they will. They'll thank you for it. Before we left for the traffic and weather update, Professor Smalls has given us a breakdown of what happened in uh, Niger and also the other Francophone countries, including uh, Côte d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast. Before we continue, Professor Smalls, Sister Fahima's calling, and she's got a, a question about what she said before. We, we started talking about Niger. Sister Fahina, good morning. You're on with Professor Small. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Hotel, Dr. Smalls. This is Sister Fahima, your Hotel. former student. You know who this is. We've yes. had a lot of conversations offline. I'm one of your former students, right? Yes, yes, ma'am. <clears throat> okay. So I just want to clarify, um, and this is because I have friends who have bought property in Africa, and they're leaving America to experience Africa. And the objection is coming from other African-Americans about Afri African-Americans who are coming, wanting the Super Bowl broadcast in Africa, wanting the proverbial McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken, wanting those things from America in Africa. That's what people are talking about. And it's, it's very pervasive, for example, in South Africa. You could be in South Africa and think you're somewhere in the U.S. 
That's what people are talking about, the Americanization, the westernization of Africa. That, but we're not, people aren't complaining about uh, us bringing out African-American culture, blues, jazz, and hip-hop, because that root is Africa. We're talking about people bringing the West to Africa. Okay, but let me stop there. Don't blame that on the African-Americans. All of that was there before the African-Americans started returning. That was brought there by the Europeans, who are the same Europeans that dominate those same markets here. So we need to be clear on how we um, analyze stuff and where it all comes from. Africa's got, just like the rest of the world, Africa's gone modern, and modernization means you copy a lot of the Europeanization. That's all over Africa. have nothing to do with the return of the African-American whatsoever. We don't have that much influence or capital in place at this time to even affect any of that, nor are we going there asking for that because most African-Americans are more into indigenous culture than most continental Africans are. So that's a myth. That's a myth to think that African-Americans are bringing that sentiment. That, that, that is there when they get there. Dr. Smalls, that's the point. Uh, I have friends who have purchased property in Africa. I mean, there was a push that bring the Super Bowl. Why, why, why would I want to watch the Super Bowl if I'm in Africa? Why would I want? And, I'm, and I There's do. Some I think people, my honey, my dear sister, some people love the Super Bowl. I never miss the Super Bowl. So I don't watch games most of the year. I like to watch the Super Bowl. I was a football player. I love okay. football. You okay. know? So I don't see an issue with that. Okay, what the just, issue should be is, is the American corporate structure, the European corporate structure, much of which comes up through South Africa, which is still dominated by the European economy. If you go to West Africa, many of the big shopping malls are owned by South African companies, even though many of the vendors within the malls are African indigenous owned. That trend has nothing to do with the African-Americans going there. And African-Americans want to watch Super Bowl. They can watch it anywhere in the world. People in Africa was watching the Super Bowl before any African-Americans got there. I think there's a, a trend. Well, let me jump in here for a second, because I think the issue, uh, uh, Professor Small, with the Super Bowl issue is with they were petitioning the, the uh, Ghanaian government to, to show it on TV. They felt that, that you know, well, they should show it on I mean, television. Yeah, they want to see but, but, Okay, then, and... But I won't even – I don't know why the Ghanaian government was doing on TV. It's not to up to the Ghanaian government. They have the same kinds of agencies and privatization of inter- in, uh, communication as any other country. So I don't know why anybody would petition the government. That would be foolish. The government don't control that. Well, I just wanted to clarify that it is those of us who travel to Africa – who want to experience Africa, just like you said, many of us are more engaged in the culture than, than the indigenous Africans. But there are those that are wanting America in Africa. And I'm clear that it's coming from Western capitalism. But the thing is, if I'm going to Africa, I want Africa. I don't want to experience the same thing that I'm moving away from. And I just wanted to clarify that point. No, I understand that, and I hear that in other people in a lot of kind of ways. But you're not going to take an, an if an African American go to Africa, it's an African American going to Africa, and people better need better get quickly to understand that that person from African America goes to Africa just like the European American, the the European European, the Asian Asian, and they take themselves there. 
they can't take what they're not. And we should be clear about that. Now, if they need to deal with transformation and learning, I think that's why a lot of people go. I have a lot of friends who've been living in Africa for 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, and they've gone through a lot of transformation in the process. But no one's going to leave here and go to Ghana and become an Ewe or a Ga or Fanti or overnight. Those are the cultural bases you're stepping into. But people are leaving here because they 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 do not want to any longer be a part of this kind of socialization and conditioning. And so it it works for some people. Some come back and say, I'm not going back. Some stay there part-time and stay here part-time, and some have just moved everything and left. And they speak Fanta better than most people. Or, you know, right. and it's not just Ghana that this is happening. There's Tanzania, there's, there's Gambia, there's Nigeria, there's, there's Senegal. People have been moving to those countries for decades, too. All right, 27 at the top of the hour. Let's keep moving. Let's, let's go back to Niger, though. Uh, you, were, you were explaining to us what the, the problems, the issues with the Francophone countries. Right. The first issue is the name, Francophone. And they're called that because these are the, there was actually about, there's 15 countries in the loop now, and there were about 26. And these are the countries who have, when colonialism, quote-unquote, never ended, but was supposed to have ended, the French put a gun to these people's head in the way they had done Haiti. They said, you're going to have to pay us for all the roads we built while we were here. You're going to have to pay us for the schools, the hospitals. You have to pay us for whatever industry we built. You're going to have to pay us for whatever farms we had. You have to pay us for whatever mines and so forth. So they signed these agreements to be free from France. They said, you're going to have to use the French language. And we're going to create a money for you called the SEPA, which is going to be used by this group as your, your, your currency. So that this should bind you together with a cur- common currency. That currency must be based on the French franc. You must give me 50%. You must guarantee 50% of your raw material revenue must be put in the French bank every year. Okay. And then if you want to use any of that money, you have to borrow it at interest. Now, this is your own money, but you've got to borrow your money at interest. So the French economy is totally dependent on controlling these nations and being in control of stealing their natural resources through this process that they've set up. And this is what Guinea under Seiko Touré refused to become a part of. And so when Seiko Touré and Guinea decided, I'm not going along with that program, the French stripped the country of everything. I'm talking the toilet paper, Uh Brother Carl. They took the toilet seats out of the houses. They tore down the hospitals and other things. And they're doing it right now in Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso has nationalized its, natu- its mines and its natural resources. And somebody sent me a clip yesterday showing the French companies using big bulldozers to crush the trucks, the pickups, and the cars and the SUVs rather than leaving it behind for the Africans' use. They're sabotaging all of the technology that they've built, just as they did under Secretary. And, 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 Thank God that the people are saying, get the hell out of our country. And that France is afraid that if these 
they're talking about democracy. This has nothing to do with democracy, has nothing to do with dictatorships. This has to do with the young people of those nations saying, we're sitting here providing the uranium for you to have nuclear power in France to light up Paris and all the other countries, and we walking around with lanterns for light in our homes. How ridiculous can you get? Without me, you can't light Paris, but but because of you, I can't light Niger. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And so I'm wondering now, with, with the coup t- taking place, <laughs> the people who were running Niger, were they installed by the French? Is, is, if you can explain the, the differences. The people who, the military, this is the military. The military, like any other military, is made up of the people of the nation. These are young people of the nation who said that, because when you're in the military, you get a little more education than the rest of the population. When you're in the military, you get to travel a little more than the rest of the population. And you get to see beyond your oppression. You get to see beyond the walls that's built up to keep you cornered in intellectually. And so usually it's the military people that make moves because you take them abroad and you train them. They get to see the world that you've built for yourself and then come back to the world that you've built for them. And these young people have made a decision. Many of the leaders that all these coups were actually trained in America for the French. But they're still, you know, we didn't lose our minds, those of us who served. I served in the American military. My father served in the American military, and he was a leader in the labor movement in, in New York. My brother served in the military. They were all part of the movement. One of them was with Malcolm. So serving in the military don't change your consciousness, you know. I volunteered to serve in the military. I was a war resistor in the military back in the 60s. So, you yeah. know, this, this myth I'm trying to figure out who's who's back. If, if, who are the French backing in this? Are, are they backing the, the military or are they backing the, the ousted president? They're backing the ousted president, the people that did the collaborators that they put in there and kept in there. Let's be clear. If the president was the president, the natural resources of Niger wouldn't be going to, to, to Paris. <clears throat> and the, and the leader, All right, hold that thought right there, Professor. We've got to take a short break here. We've got to check, check the uh, news, traffic, and weather. Uh, first check of the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We'll come back, though. Let's get, dig a little deeper into this. Also in Mali, because I understand that Mali is, as now say, the French, the French language is not their official language. They're going to use an African language, and they're using it on the radio. And, and I think and they say that uh, the people are really approving of that, that the, the French, French is no longer their official language. So we'll see how that turns out. As I mentioned, we got to step aside and got get caught up on the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. You want to join this conversation with Professor Small, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes, uh, uh, 27 away from the top of the hour in Baltimore on 10. 10 WOLB and the DMV run FM 95.9 at AM 1450 WOL where information is power. It's AM Eastern time right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV run FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Professor Small, so I'll let you continue telling us who the players are in, in this year because we keep seeing it. And if you can tell us what ECOWAS and the AU are doing as well. First, let's learn who they are. ECOWAS is the, the, the West, and it's an economic 
Union of West African States. Um, the AU, we know, is the former OAU, which is supposed to now be the African Union, whose job is to lead Africa to a unified uh, nation, which hasn't even begun on their part. ECOWAS is now threatening to send military force vis-a-vis the Nigerian army and the army of Cote d'Ivoire to back the French invasion of these countries. We know that the government in Ivory Coast was overthrown by the French and the Americans, and this man, Cotura, who was a part of the World Bank, was brought and made the president of Cote d'Ivoire while the legitimate president um, was thrown out of government. And no one in the world said much of nothing, especially African-Americans. We sit down and we see things. We say nothing. And we said nothing. And so American friends overthrow the government in Cote d'Ivoire and put their man in there. And that the French is responsible, by the way, if you read, study history, and people need to, for the assassination of over 16 African presidents. 16 since the 60s. They murdered them just like they murdered Patrice Lumumba. But because they speak French, we don't even pay attention to it. And we like to call ourselves intelligent black Americans. We are the most unintelligent people when it comes to things African. Let's come back. Let me me jump in and ask you this, though, uh, Professor Small. Do you think that's the reason why it's not talked about in in our community here stateside about what's going on, especially in the Francophone countries? We're not part of the discussion or we don't get involved. You think it's because of the language barrier? The language is a part of it. We tend to do the same thing in the Caribbean. We're closer to Jamaica because we speak English, and we don't have the same closeness to Haiti, who speaks French. We don't have the same closeness to the Dominican Republic, which is almost as black as Haiti, that speaks Spanish. We have no closeness to, to Colombia which have the largest, the second largest black population in the Western Hemisphere. So language and culture does make a difference. But African-Americans can't keep stepping up to the plate But how intelligent and educated they are. But when it comes to things, Africans, they're the most unintelligent people in the world. And yet that's supposed to be your motherland, that is your ancestral land, that is your culture, that is your genesis. And we need to step up to the plate and become more intelligent about things African and stop using uh, the fact that we don't know the language as an excuse for not supporting human beings who are our cousins, kit and kin across the board, who are still suffering slavery, especially under the French. Colonialism is slavery. Make no bones about it. It's the same as the slavery we went through here. Those people who are drowning in the Mediterranean trying to find, get to Europe to find jobs. Most of them are coming from the so-called Francophone countries. Yet the wealth of their country is going to France to make the French people live better. But the wealth of their country is not going into the community to make the Malian live better, to make the Nigerian live better, to make the Chadian live better, to make the Burkina Faso people live better. So what these young people you've seen who've led these military coups are saying we want to keep the raw materials in our country, in our country. We want to develop our country the way our raw materials have developed your country. We don't want to give you 50% of the, 
of what comes out of the ground. And then they go further. They The CEPR, the money that's used by these really 19 countries now, is the, the currency that the French designed for them to use as a united currency. Then the French, they have a central bank. And guess what? The French sit on the central bank as with, with the only one that have veto power over any decision that bank makes. But any decisions that the 19 country make that French don't agree with around its economic development, the French has veto power over that. Could you imagine that? Yeah, but I got to ask this question, Professor Small. Who cut that deal? Who agreed to that? The French did. The, the people who were put in power doing the, what they call the end of colonialism, the people who the French and the Americans held a gun to their head, that if you want to be free, you sign this. The same way they did in Haiti. Haiti just finished paying them off, what, a few years ago? They made the Haitian people pay them billions of dollars for taking Haiti back from them. They, they did the same thing in Africa. And they've been getting away with it. Nobody has been talking about this. A few of us have been talking about it over the years. But for the most part, nobody knows that these people have to give their raw that France say, we own the raw materials in your ground. And you will put 50% of that in, in our bank or more every year. That's what they made these people do. That's what these young people are fighting against. People talking about overthrowing democracy. What democracy? These collaborators were nothing more than French managers that managed the French control and robbery of their countries. They should have beheaded all of them, but they were kind. They didn't do that. So let me ask you this, at 13, away from the top of the hour, Professor Small, do you, do you see what's happening in this year? Do you think it's going to spread to the other Francophone nations? This has been going on for a long time. What, what, what is happening? We, 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 we moved, Niger got in the news because there's a big issue there. I'll tell you what that issue is in a minute. But Mali did the same thing. Mali broke away. Before Niger, Burkina Faso broke away before Niger. The reason Niger is getting such a complex is there's a big American base in Niger, big American military base there. There's a big French base there. There's 300,000 French troops stationed on the continent of Africa. What the hell is 300,000 French troops stationed on Africa doing there? There's more troops than they have stationed in France. Furthermore, the reason Nigeria has become a big issue, when Putin started his war, the Americans and the other Europeans sabotaged the pipeline of natural gas going from Russia to Europe. Remember, Germany would not go along with NATO because Germany needed the gas. Italy needed the gas. Somebody sabotaged the pipeline. Guess what the agreement was? don't worry, we will give you natural gas from Nigeria, and we will run a pipeline from Nigeria to the Mediterranean. So you can get natural gas. So the natural gas that got lost from Russia won't be an issue. But that pipeline has to run through the middle of Nigeria. 
when the when the military men took over Niger, they closed the pipeline to Europe down. That's the issue in Niger with with the Americans and the others. You understand that? Yeah, but the first time I'm hearing it, that's uh, it seems pretty clear now. This, but uh, like I said, the first time I'm hearing this, because we always figure there's some sort of proxy war going on on the continent of Africa between uh, the, the Russians, the, the, the Americans, the, the Brits, and and the Chinese. They're all in in Africa. It seems to be all trying to get a piece of Af- Africa at this, this particular point. Take it another step, Carl. The man who got killed in the plane crash yesterday. Do you yeah. know that it, that his troops are in Niger and in Mali backing those troops fighting against the French? Mm. And in the Central African yeah. Republic. Yes. Yeah. So the question becomes, who shot the plane down? It would seem to me that France and America would have more reason to shoot it down than, than, than Putin. Yeah. <laughs> when you when you, when you laid out now what you just did, of course. But again, we're talking. They're taking the diamonds and and the minerals out of Africa, and and taking mm-hmm. it to 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 Europe or or to Russia. It, it, did, mm-hmm. did anybody see that as a problem though, or, or did everybody just you mentioned well, how many well, American you troops are in Mali? What, what are you supposed well, to do? Just stand still and do nothing? You make that's the best what I'm deal you can make to survive. You make the best deal you can make. Other people will give you a best deal. The Chinese will come and say, yeah, I want the same goal that they want. But I'm willing to build you 10 hospitals and a freeway for 10,000 miles. And I'm willing to build schools in return for that. And I'm willing to give you technology that the others won't share with you. You've got to, your product isn't worth anything in the ground. But you got to make it worth something when you sell it. The Europeans are just stealing it and giving us nothing in return. And they get a few puppet government people and put them in, pay them off and take what they want. The people saying, no, we live here. We are the people. We need the wealth shared with us. And that's what these young men in government are offering to their people. Let's take control of the wealth in our ground and share it with our people. And not with a few rich people who are put in place by the colonial masters. There's no place else to sell you raw material. You can either sell it to China the Russia, the American, the French, whoever comes to buy it. But come to buy my raw material. Don't come to kill me, put the government in you want, and then steal my raw material. There's a difference between a, a treaty and an agreement with both parties are clear on what they're agreeing to, and there's no threat or gun to anybody's head. And an agreement signed with guns to your heads and threats on the destruction of your nation. That's what that's what the, that's why people say wonder why people say that Africa is so rich and still yet so poor and and you just laid it out for us right there explaining that with the the other folks know that Africa's got all this uh, raw material these minerals in the ground including gold diamond copper uranium all of that we uh, uh, that's in the ground uh, but they can't take it to the next level so is there a way for Africa to to cut out the middleman. The, to to mine their that, own that's what these minerals. Young, that's what these young people are doing right now, and that's what Burkina Faso said. It's you know we're going. We saw it happen in with Mugabe in 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 Zimbabwe, and they turn on Mugabe and sanction his country 
because he told them, we will mine our gold and our diamond ourselves. We will sell it to you at our cost. They kept talking about the race thing and the land. Yet taking the land back was a big part of it, too. But it was because Mugabe nationalized the natural resources of Zimbabwe. Magafule, who died mysteriously two years ago, a year and a half ago, the president of Tanzania, did the same thing took control of the diamonds and, 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 and minerals of Tanzania from Britain. Made Britain pay them, I think, something like $19 billion, what they'd been stealing over the years. And then he mysteriously had some heart attack. We've got to get small. Hold, clear. Hold that thought right there, Eric, because you're, you're blowing down a lot of people's alley this morning, folks. This is, is answering the question, because you all, you know, people keep hearing that Africa is so rich and wondering why it's so poor. Professor James Small just laid it out for you right there. Six minutes away from the top of the hour, we got to uh, step aside and get caught up with the latest traffic and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes with Professor Small. You want to join this discussion, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your calls in four minutes in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Keep Good morning again, family. A minute after the top of the hour, I guess it's Professor James Small. Professor Small is explaining to us what's really going on in Africa, especially what's going on in this year. Professor Small got a tweet from Lee. And Lee, I know you got you, we, your, your question uh, got an uh, automated response, but I'm going to ask uh, uh, Professor Small anyway. Uh, Professor Small, Lee says, we know all about the problems in Africa. I guess you mean some of us do, but what can Africans and African-Americans do about it? That one of the best things you can do about it is exactly what we're doing. Now, let's talk about it. Let's tell other African-Americans and other Africans in the diaspora what is going on on the continent. Let's petition governments on the continent, especially the governments that those of us who are immigrants come from. And let's petition the French and our own government in Washington, D.C., since we said we are democracy and we are about freedom. And why are we not helping the people of Niger get free from France? Why are we on the side of the people who are enslaving the people uh, of, of Niger, of, of, of Mali, of Burkina Faso? Why is my tax money used to support French genocide and the French military in Africa? We need to ask these questions of our own government. We need to have demonstrations in front of the French embassies and consulates. We need to get on as many talk shows as we can. We need to hit every podcast that we can on the Internet. The Internet is seen all over the world. We need to let our people in Mali and the other places in the Frankfurt say, no, we stand with them in every means possible, every way possible, and let them know we support you. And we're going to rise up and let the French government and the Belgian government, don't leave the Belgian and the French, have been full partners since the genocide of the Congo. They were full partners in the murdering of Patrice Lumumba with America. So let's never let them forget. History gets rid of the mystery. So study the basic history of our people and teach it to the children. Talk about it in the church everywhere we can. Make ourselves visible with the computer. You can get on the computer right now and touch the whole world using any one of the platforms that's there from Facebook, 
to link to, to, to Twitter, to Instagram. Use all of those to make your voice heard in your support of the people of Mali, of Burkina Faso. Uh, and what was beautiful, um, Carl, a few days ago, the Malian government and the Burkina Faso government sent troops to Niger to let them know we will back you and die for you. And Guinea said if they attack Niger, Guinea would consider that an attack on Guinea as well. That's why they haven't gone in there yet, because they know if they do, they're going to be a battle for this one. Wow. <laughs> you know, all of, all of a sudden there seems to be some sort of resistance. Black people coming together. You know, we saw it here locally at, at the riverfront. The black people just didn't ask him whether he was a Ghanaian or a Malayan or was a Muslim or a, 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 a Christian or was a Democrat or Republican. They saw black people in trouble and they responded. And I think this what we're seeing yes, is playing yes. out on the continent as well and what you're telling us. Uh, and and yes, all yes. of a sudden, the, the black man is rising. <laughs> That's all I can say. Uh, and and put, in, put it on notice. That, and, and, for, and for once... We've seen we've seen some some backbone, some resistance because we've seen Washington. And I keep wondering who cut that deal that France everything goes to the French Treasury, everything has to go through Paris, and they have to come have to get the French permission if you want to buy something. You know, if you're an, a French uh, a French former French colony, as they say, you have to go through everything has to go through Paris. That should that should uh, to me it was just like ridiculous. I, I know court of law was started rising up against that. It's slavery. It's colonialism never ended. And they did that to holding people under duress. And if you look at the leaders from Thomas Sankara, how they murdered that young boy who was the president of his nation. And all he was asking for is that the raw materials of Burkina Faso be used for the people of Burkina Faso. They murdered the leaders of Togo. They murdered the leaders of Benin. They murdered the leaders of every country that rose up against them. And because we got caught in the language culture thing, we didn't pay attention to what was happening in the French area. The way we saw Nigeria and Ghana, who spoke English, we paid more attention to those areas. But now we need to open our minds and expand our minds. The people who make up the so-called Francophones say that's one of the largest contiguous areas in Africa. That group makes up one of the largest groups in Africa. And they need to be free. And these young men and women who are rising up in the military and the young men and women in society, thousands and thousands of young men have come to join the Malian army. If they come for this country, they're going to fight all of us. Wow. That's a good sight right there. Right. And I think that's the problem, uh, Professor Small. We, we just don't know. Uh, we don't have people like yourself who are going out on the radio and speaking around and, and, and informing our people. As we, you know, they want to, some of our folks just want to talk about Donald Trump. But there are other issues out there. And we need to know about what's going on on the continent. And I think, that part, that's, I think that's the major problem, that most of our people just don't know. It's not that they don't care. They just don't no, know right. how, they, what the struggle is. They just don't know. And if they did, I know how our people will stand up. That's why I'm saying we've got to use every venue that we have to the person's question. Use the Internet. Everybody can be reached there. You can reach millions of people. You don't have to be a Professor Small. or Anybody can get on Instagram. Anybody can get on Facebook. Anybody can get on any of these platforms and talk about Africa, talk about what's going on in Africa, support the people of Africa. 
support the young people of Africa who want to take control of their natural resources for themselves. How dare France? You've got wonderful hospitals. You've got light everywhere. You've got all of the technology you want because you're using the uranium in your nuclear power plant of Niger. And the people of Niger can't even build a highway because you've taken their wealth away. Your technology isn't shared with them so that they can build a nuclear power plant to power their country and feed their people. You know, it's genocide, really. Yeah, we got, Brother Art wants to talk to you, but let me ask you this, though. Are you concerned about uh, the BRICS nations? They had a meeting in South Africa. South, South Africa is part of the BRICS nations, and, you know, their, their plan is to supplant the U.S. dollars, the world's re- reserve currency. And, and I, I understand that Nigeria's uh, applied to join the, the BRICS uh, nations. Putin was supposed to speak there. He didn't go. Uh, uh, President Xi from China was uh, supposed to speak. Uh, he was there, but did not speak. Uh, something's I'm not kind of fishy about this. This whole idea about this BRICS nation. How do you see it? People have a right to do whatever they have to do to get from under the control of the Americans in Western Europe. And this allowed people, other nations, to break free of the dominance of the American and the European banking and corporate structure. So be it. If people right. want to be Not, free, if we are right. offering real democracy, tell tell America and Europe, show me the democracy you've built in Africa, where the people got education and don't have to leave home to find jobs. Show me the democracy you built in Africa, where we've got a health care system that can take care of our people. Show me the democracy you built in Africa, where our agriculture business is belonging to us and not some international agro-conglomerate. Show me what you've built in Africa, where the mining industry is controlled by us. Show me what you've built where the oil industry is controlled by us. Otherwise, get the hell out of the way. And if BRICS allow people to push them out, so be it. Do you ever see a time, and just thinking about South Africa, where De Beers controls the diamonds, do you ever see a, a time where we'll push back, our people will push back and take over the, the diamond mining uh, industry again? Not, we've never had control of it. When the Nibu, I just had this discussion with a South African sister yesterday. Um, we've got to get control of it. And the young people in South Africa and the young people in the ANC is calling for just that. They, can, they not only got control of the mining industry, they control 90% of the best farmland. There's really two South Africa. There's a white South Africa who run their government, and then there's a black South Africa. We never hear nothing but the white South African government. The white South Africans run all the little towns they live in, and black people better never get caught in there after sundown if you don't work there. So we need to start doing some research on what's going on in South Africa. Then again, to get Nelson out of jail, a handful of people made deals that makes no sense to me till today. It made no sense to Winnie Mandela that you would cut a deal for freedom and don't have any of the wealth of the nation devoted to the development of the nation. And so all they got, the NC got to do, is to be the managers of apartheid. They became the managers of the ghettos with no natural resources to manage. 
And, and let me jump in here. Having said that, though, is that why there's some pushback now in South Africa against the ANC? That's a big reason why. And that pushback was there from the beginning. But if people remember, for those of us who remember, the ANC wasn't the only body fighting in South Africa. There were other organizations, too. And there was the PAC who was given the greatest challenge. And during that year or two before Nelson got out of jail, most of the PAC leadership was assassinated across Europe and Africa by the forces of South Africa so that there would not be a competition with the ANC for who's going to take over that government. All of those things you need to study and learn about. Right. And, 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 and but help us filling this there for, for cause one, one of the, uh, the ANCs uh, was the Encounter Party, uh, Mangusutu Gato Butelezi. And he's still in South Africa. Is, 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 he, uh, is he cool with what's going on? Do you know, uh, Professor Small? Well, you don't hear much about, about him. Um, but Budalese, was you know, he was a nationalist. Uh, he got vilified by the black socialists who thought that ANC, who they was, had a little more socialist leaning, would, would go to where they thought it, it, it should go. But we had a thing because Buddha Lacey had a relationship with America. We couldn't see the relationship that the ANC had with the same America. And so we missed the point. We played the divide and conquer game and we lost. You know, we played into their game. Instead of trying to get some unity between the different forces that were struggling for freedom. That's the same thing that happened in Ghana with Nkrumah and the Ashanti Nation. You know, no one talks about the fact that there was a coup led against Nkrumah uh, by elements of the Asante Nation. It was crushed, and the leaders were put in jail because they felt Nkrumah, you know, should have done more to create the federated state of, of the former colonized area that was called Ghana. And the, the Ashantis wanted a federated state and not a United States of Ghana. And that led to conflicts and problems, you know. And Professor Small, hold that thought right there. We've got to take another quick look at the traffic and weather in our different cities. And Brother Arts calling from Connecticut has a question for you. Folks, you too can join this conversation with Professor Small. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876 at 14 after the top of the hour. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore around 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. And thanks for rolling with us this morning, 21 minutes after the top of the hour with Professor James Small. Professor Small has given us a class on what's going on in Africa today, especially what's going on in Niger, Burkina Faso, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, some of the other, Mali, some of the other uh, Francophone, so-called so-called Francophone nations. Interesting, folks. And I think the reason why many of us don't, are not involved because we just don't know. And again, the... the the colonial we're trapped in the english the, the oppressive language of, of english or french and that's what's keeping us divided but anyways i mentioned before we left uh, brother art is calling from connecticut has got a question for professor small brother art is online too brother art, good morning you're on with uh, professor small good morning professor small and carl nelson it's good to hear both of you again morning, um on my book club uh the black book uh club and study group right now we're reading about the uh, sister ella baker and the black freedom movement 
and I'm sure you know her um, out of New York. Mm-hmm. Okay, and but I also want to move back to the subject at hand. Are there any good books um, that you would recommend that kind of break down that agreement with the uh, um, the African countries and the French, or just any of the uh, type of agreements that talk about that? I don't know any book offhand um, that talks directly about the agreements, but you you can find much of it if you just you have to play around the internet and Google, you know, francophone countries, and begin to look at French interests, um, French control, and you can right. begin to find bits and pieces of it. I know it's called Eleven right. Point, uh, uh, the Eleven Point Agreement, and uh, um, what what they did simply is saying we're going to move our governmental control. We're going to leave our troops based here in your country. We're going to stay in control of your language. So the largest group of French speakers in the world is on the African continent. We're going to, and that's going to be your official language. We're going to open a central bank and mm. you, will, you will make up this bank and we're going to give you a currency called a CIFA which you will use for this bank. But we will maintain veto power over any decision the bank makes. You know, you will deposit 50% of your natural wealth with us every year. And you can only use it if you borrow it at interest. And it just goes on and on. You can't have an agreement with another country that we don't sit and sign off on. You know, you can't have an agreement with another banking system that we don't sit and sign off on. And what is happening now in the world, you got Australia moving up, you got the Middle East, you've got uh, India, you've got Nigeria, all trying to invest in different parts of Africa. And the areas that we're talking about, the French has had exclusive control, the French, the Belgians, and America. America's always the silent partner. And these deep American banks and the American corporate structure that you're dealing with. Uh, the same thing in Congo. We think of Congo, but we don't think of the French. They speak French in Congo, right? The French and the Belgians is in full partnership in Congo. They still are. The French corporations, the French banks, the Belgians corporation, Belgian bank, backed by American money. That's always been the arrangement. No, America wasn't at the Berlin Conference, but they helped to finance the damn Berlin Conference. And and that brings my question. Uh, Thank you, Brother. Uh, My question is, uh, Professor Smalls, I appreciate it. Let me recommend one book called that I think will help see the setup. It's called African Dominion. African Dominion. It's by a brother named Michael A. Gomez. African Dominion. And, And it looks at that whole West African area that it was Islamized and then Francoized. You know? And my question at 26 out of the top there, our Professor Small, is when you look you look at France, you look at Belgium, Portugal as well, got to throw them in there, and you look at the Brits. But they, they, these are small countries. How do they manage to control the continent? That, the whole Berlin Conference, how, how do they, we understood no, that they carved up Africa, but, but, but no, how do they continue no, to do it? Technology. 
military technology in the beginning. You know, we we still when after the Berlin Conference, the first major battle would come would be the battle in Ethiopia, which the Ethiopia wins. They defeat the Italians, and they partially defeat the Italians because they were able to borrow some money from the Britons, who didn't want the Italians to take Ethiopia because they wanted it, right? The second major battle, that's why we've got to study African history, and I recommend the eighth-volume UNESCO History of Africa, which is written mostly by Africans. You know, for a couple of decades, we need to read it. It's, it's the UNESCO History of Africa. It's eight volumes. Very important document by mostly African scholars on what went on in this continent, and then you can see what's going on today. But the second major battle is the battle for Sudan. And the battle for Sudan is, is the defense of Sudan is led by Muhammad Ahmed. Britain is the one fighting to take Sudan away from the Africans. So they send their best general, the most popular general in Britain, Gordon, with an army of 23,000 people, mostly Turks and, and Brits, and they come down to Sudan. Muhammad Ahmed defeats, they go back with 3,000 of the 23,000 men. And with the head of Gordon had been cut off and sent back to the Brits. No one talks about the fact that we fought to defend Africa. And after that, they poisoned, they were able to get a collaborator to poison Muhammad Ahmed, the Mahdi. And another brother took over the name Abdullah. And he waged a mighty battle against the French at his west, the Brits at at his forward, and didn't have the gun technology. And would have won those battles. But Ethiopia, because it had borrowed this money from Britain, didn't um, soar up the eastern flank. You know, and so we need to so, say, go down further south to, to the to the Zulu nation, the Great Zulu Wars, which happens after the Berlin Conference, and you study Setuweya, and you study um, Bambata. These men waged mighty wars with bows and arrows and spears against Gatlin guns and be calling rifles and cannons. They defeated us with the gun technology, which we didn't have. But we fought. So that explains why uh, Ethiopia is, is the only country on the continent that wasn't colonized? Or was it? Wasn't colonized uh, physically, but certainly it was colonized culturally to a great degree. You got Eritrea, which is... Uh, was, was, that's the part of Ethiopia that was colonized by the Italians. Um, though they have freedom now, it's, it's still a, an Italian cultural phenomena in Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopia has Christianity. The Christianity wasn't born in Ethiopia. It comes out of a, a kind of a black mixed Christian thing, a Benzantian empire. That's another whole story if we were to study the history. Just to get truth have a clear understanding of what's going on on the continent. But that's how we got defeated with gun technology. Not just gun technology, but coming up against a people when killing human beings was normal. That was not normal in Africa. Even in wars, you tried to kill as little people as possible to get to the point of peace in the conflict. But for us, like in the Zulu Wars, especially with Bambata, when he had to see a thousand of his people killed in an hour by a Gatlin gun, 
that was unheard of. How, how could you imagine this? How could they do this? We, what did this? Of course you would surrender. How could you fight this? You know, right. you got to go back to the 1800s, the 1700s, 1800s, and imagine what gun technology meant to our people, especially when the Gatlin and the machine guns came into the battlefield. And where instead of one-on-one men fighting, you got a machine that kills a thousand people in an hour. How do you fight that? Yeah. How do you even imagine that? Right. Hold on a second, Professor. Got a bunch of folks want to talk to you. Twenty-nine minutes away from the top there. Let's go out west. Uh, Howard's part of the Wake Up Squad in Los Angeles. He's on line three. Howard, good morning. You're on with the Professor Small. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I just have a couple questions, and maybe I can take them off the air. But I like to know uh, the assassination of uh, that guy in Russia yesterday. How does that play in with the Wagner? What what side of the struggle was the Wagner Group gonna gonna play in this? And uh, and I, I'm wondering about Cuba. What is Cuba? How does Cuba play in it? Because you remember they went into Angola and helped defeat uh, the apartheid there. And um, I wonder about what, what role they're going to play. And another question, oh, gosh. Oh, you mentioned military technology. And you got to realize that people, that's what conquered the world with gunpowder. They, they, you know, then they come up with these uh, Gatling guns, all these rapid-fire machine guns. But it started off with, with gunpowder where they could be uh, a distance away and shoot the, uh, people uh, this way with the flintlocks. So I want to know what's uh, about that. And uh, what was that book you, you were talking about earlier about the Vita, UNESCO or something? I, I want to try to find that somewhere. Maybe I can go to the library and find that. Yeah, right. UNESCO Thanks, History of Africa. UNESCO History of Africa, eight volume. Okay. Volumes. okay. Thanks, thanks, Howard. We're coming up on a break, Professor Small. So I'll let you respond to Howard's question because he wants to know about Prigozhin, uh, who they say died in that plane crash in Russia yesterday, and, and his role and what he was doing in in Africa as well, working with some of these African leaders. Or some people call them puppies that he set up. Folks, you want to join this conversation? You got a question for what's going on in the African states? Professor Small will answer it for you at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seventy six. We'll take your phone calls after the get caught up in the latest news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. And the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes away from the top of the hour with Professor James Small. Get back to him in a moment. Let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, New York activist Charles Barron will be here. He's going to continue our commemoration of Black August, this time a salute to Matula Shakur. But before we hear from Charles Barron, Baltimore, or I should say Maryland State Public Defender, Natasha Datik will be here to discuss the incarceration of our young black children. And tomorrow, of course, is Friday. We give you another chance to free your mind, think for yourself, and join us for another edition of Open Phone Friday. We begin promptly at 6 a.m. Eastern Time right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. Also in the DMV, we're rolling on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Professor Small, uh, Howard out in L.A., questions about Boghossian, the plane crash that went down, and and what he was doing in Africa. If you can explain that some more to our folks, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, Boghossian, remember, is an agent of the Soviet Union. Um, He worked for the Soviet Union. And unfortunately, we we listen 
to the media, and we reduce the Soviet Union to Mr. Putin. Putin may be the most powerful person in the Soviet Union, but he's not, or in Russia, but he's not Russia alone. He doesn't rule Russia by himself. There's a government there. There's organizations there. There's corporations there. There's business there. So Bogosian worked for them. Bogosian is a mercenary, meaning he has a private army of former militarily trained people from other armies. Bogosian had people who were once in the American army and the Russian army and the French army and the British army, and they get paid to fight wars for other people. But mercenaries have always done, so let's not lose who we're dealing with. We're dealing with a mercenary army. We, America, had them in Iraq. It was called Blackwater. It was the same kind of a Gorgian army fighting in Iraq and fighting in Afghanistan for America called Blackwater, okay? So people don't get twisted like they don't understand what's going on. I don't know whether he died in the plane crash yesterday. They said he died. He probably did. Yes, Putin certainly had a reason to take him out because this fool tried to overthrow the government or at least threaten the government to overthrow. That was a foolish move on his part. But also there are other forces that would want him dead too, certainly the French, the Americans, and the Brits, because Bogosian have troops in Chad and Mali um, and the sending troops into Niger to back the government there. And so the last thing the West want to see, a fighting force like the Wagner Group, which is one of the best fighting forces in the world, by the way, um, backing up these African governments. You know, so this just happened yesterday. None of us know who brought the plane down or why. We can only speculate on that. But those are the prime candidates. It would be the, the government of uh, Russia, America, France, and Britain. Those are the four players who would have want that plane down. Interesting. Uh, 18 away from the top. Now, six and more calls for your brother Kwame's calling from North Carolina online too. Brother Kwame, good morning. You're on with Professor Small. Good morning, brothers. How are you guys doing? Good morning, sir. Professor Small, what type of negative negative problems you think Niger gonna have with open opening up relationships with North Korea? The same that we would expect with anybody else doing so. You're going to have the Americans trying to, um, what is the, what's that word they use to boycott you, to put sanctions on you. You're going to have uh, the, the Western Europe who follow America and some backwards African countries who will follow them with sanctions. Um, other countries in the world have do business with North Korea, including America, by the way. <laughs> With all the crap we talk, we still do business with North Korea. Um, so, but they will do the, 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 their sanctions. But Niger is a free state. The people have a right to do business with whomever they want to do business with. The only reason we think of North Korea as a pariah, because America said it's a pariah, because they didn't sit back and let America conquer them. That makes them the enemy. You know, we got to think of how to think. Why is everybody angry at North Korea? Because they didn't submit to slavery? Because they fought back? You know, 
you make a joke of their leaders. Well, joke as you may, they've built the nation state and they've protected it all these years. And no one dare cross that border and mess with them. You know? So they'll receive some um, kickback, but they will go on. It isn't just uh, North Korea that's wanting to have a business with them. Australia is there trying to invest in the country. Uh, Middle Eastern countries are trying to invest. India is there knocking on the door saying, listen, we want to be in partnership with you and invest in your raw materials. Whoever bring you the best deal that allow you to get the best deal for your people, that's who you do business with. So it isn't just America, Russia, and France. The rest of the world know that Africa is the only shop in town. You know. So, so true. Thank you, Brother Kwame. 800-450-7876. 15 minutes away from the top of the hour. Let's go to D.C. Ramon's waiting for us on line three. Good morning, Ramon. You're on with Professor Small. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Gentlemen, may the higher powers bless you. Um, quick question, um, uh, Brother Small, Doctor Small, is um, I hear about the um, the technology that uh, the Europeans use on uh, the Africans, uh, but I wanted to know what about just like uh, the Europeans did with smallpox and different diseases here. What type of biological weapons have they used and 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 what they're using now biologically, weapons. Well, I wish I knew the answer to that. We could all then counter it. I mean, we know they use everything they got in their arsenal. Um, you know the way they met when you deal with your agricultural business, just the technology that they use for agriculture is poisonous to us. The fertilizers, the sodas, the other things they use in the ground that destroys the ground. Um, we know they'll use bacterial warfare. We don't know the extent to which they're going with any of that because we don't have the technology to do the kind of intelligence work against them that they do against us. Um, we know they do, but none of that will bring them victory if Africans unite because many of the people that work for them and most of the industries that they use against us are African people. If we unite around our identity and make our identity our identity, our point of loyalty, no one can defeat us no matter what weapons they bring to the table. Amen. Thank you, Ramon. 13 away from the top there. Uh, Professor Small, uh, a tweet question. Twitter says, please ask Dr. Small, is it too late for Africans to share in African farming to feed themselves, or has white and foreign farming corporations totally taken over? Most of Africa is available for farming. You'd be surprised how much land. Remember, Africa is so big, you can put all of North America in Africa. You can put all of China in Africa. You can put all of Western Europe in Africa. You can put all of Japan in Africa, and you still got room, plenty room with all of that. No, the, ag the agricultural business in Africa needs developing, and they've been looking to us to help with that for years. We just haven't showed up at the door. The black farmers in America have been fighting just to get recognized by the federal government of the United States, need to look to Africa. They need to take their skills and their technology to Africa. 
Every African nation could use it. There's enough land there waiting to be developed. Why are we getting wheat from uh, what's this country that's at war with the Soviet Union and Russia right now? Um, Ukraine. Why are, we, why are we waiting for Ukraine to send wheat to Africa? We've got so much land, we could feed the whole world with one or two African nations. It's because, no, the development of the African agricultural sector have not been developed by Africans. And that's the new trend. Let's do for ourselves. And so the American black farmers need to seriously consider going home to Africa, speaking to different countries and bringing your technology and your knowledge and your understanding of how to develop agribusiness to those nations. They're waiting for you. They would rather have you than anybody else. So, But if you're not there, they're going to accept you anybody else. Yeah, that's, that's what uh, Dr. Ankara Chimbari Kwa has been telling us. Uh, she's been trying to rally the African diaspora to, to reinvest in, or invest at least in, in Africa, in the continent. So they're waiting for us to come home. That's why they have to cut deals with these other countries. But first of all... Uh, Howard asked about Cuba because Cuba's during the, the the freedom struggle on the continent, especially in Southern Africa. The Cubans were there; they were sending troops, and after that, they were sending the medical brigades to help out uh, different African states. Are they involved in any of what's going on right now? Well, my first question answered: the If Cuba never lifts another finger to help Africa, Cuba has done more to help Africa than any other nation outside of Africa. Second thing, Cuba has been under duress by the boycott by America and the sanction by America over 50-something years now. Um, Cuba has been kept in an undeveloped state by America and its allies economically because Cuba stood up against them and because Cuba fought in, in Africa. But Cuba never left Africa after the victories in Mozambique and Angola, uh, Guinea-Bissau, Namibia. If you went to Ghana right now, the majority of doctors in Ghana is Cuban doctors. And that's true for many African countries. Cuba's probably got the largest medical mission in the world to Africa of any country in the world. And I'm sure Cuban technology and Cuban military know-how is still being shared those African nations who are fighting for freedom. But Cuba had to pay a price, and we haven't stood up to thank Cuba for the sacrifice they made in Africa. You know? And we need to. Nine away from the top there. Tyrone's uh, joining us. He's in Baltimore on line two. Good morning, Tyrone. You're on with Professor Small. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Small's on. I like what I see with regard to a lot of these African nations waking up, and uh, I think key to that their survival is nations like Russia and China, as as you know, contrary to the propaganda that's being put out. I, I know that Niger, France, for instance, gets 85 percent of its power for nuclear power from not from the uh, yellow cake uranium that comes out of Niger. They also get gold, and most of that gold from countries like Mali and things of that nature. And they have four. France has. Uh, the fourth largest gold reserves 
and uh, they have no gold mines in France. They're all in Africa. And all European nations pretty much use Africa to extract their wealth basically for free and use it for their purposes. Um, I was wondering if you felt how you feel about France. Is, are, is they, are they just going to just let Niger go just like that, you know, depending on their energy dependency with regard to their power, or you think they're going to put up a fight and try to take it back? All right, Tyrone. Thanks, uh, Tyrone. That's a great question. Hold that thought right there, Professor Small. We got to take a quick break. That's a great question, Tyrone. Looking into the future, but we got to take a quick break here. Check the latest traffic and weather for our early morning commuters. And we'll let Professor Small respond to that question on the other side. Folks, you want to join us? 800-450-7876. At six away from the top, I'll be back in four minutes. Right here with Professor Small, and he's responding to Tyrone's question in Baltimore on 1010 WLB in the DMV or on FM 95.9 and AM 14. 50 WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. Momentarily, we'll speak with Maryland State Public Defender, Natasha Dartik. Well, let's wrap up with Professor Small. Professor Small, uh, Tyrone's question about Niger, and he's saying it was uranium. Is the uranium the issue here, what this, all this, this whole fight is about, or is it something else? The uranium is a big issue, but the reason the response is quicker in Niger than you've seen in Mali and Burkina Faso is because of the pipeline that was run from Nigeria across Niger to take natural gas to Europe to replace the natural gas that was coming from the Soviet Union. Cutting off that, meaning Germany and the others are telling France and America, if you want us to be in NATO, and not take the gas from Russia, you better find another source. Well, that source has now been cut off by Niger. Is it is it cut off permanently, or till they just work out a deal, or, or till they get rid of the, uh, the, the quote unquote the puppet government that, that was installed by France? I'm not sure what 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 the negotiations are. I just know that that is part of the fact that that we must consider that. Um, that pipeline is a major reason. Um, ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, uh, is talking about sending in troops. But if they dare do that, I hope the youth of Nigeria and the youth of Ghana and the youth of Ivory Coast tear those governments down to the ground. How dare they? Not a single ECOWAS nation voted to send troops in to oust the French. Not a single one voted to stop the the draconian contract that the French had controlling the wealth of these countries. And now they're going to send troops in talking about they're going in for democracy. What democracy? Who gave the French or the Americans a monopoly on what democracy should look like? Is is that the same for the AU, Professor Small? They're also considering sending new troops? AU and the ECOWAS are the same group of Negroes, collaborators. If they weren't collaborators, there would not be any need for a coup d'etat in any of those countries. It's because these collaborators have allowed the exploitation and status quo of the West exploiting Africa to continue unabated. How dare they talk this crap when all of the thousands of our youth are dying in the mines of Congo while the Congo people are starving by the roads? Where is ECWA in the Congo? Where is the African Union in the Congo? You know, well, fi- they ought to be ashamed well, fi- to even call themselves Africans. You know? 
Well, finally, the, the youth or the young people in, um, in the various African states, especially the Francophone African states, are stepping up and speaking out. We're seeing some resistance, some backbone, because, you know, we don't know what's really going on. And I appreciate you coming on this morning and explaining to us, because we just have a, a cursory understanding of, of what's going on in, in Niger and Mali and, and the Ivory Coast, the Burkina Faso, and the, the other Francophone nations, including the Ivory, as I mentioned, Cote d'Ivoire, because the the... the, the Ivorians, that we know we got a contingent of listeners down there who listens to us all the time and call in, but we don't know exactly what's on going on there. You know, the we don't know the subtleties of right. what's going on. We just hear what what the the U.S. wants us to hear. So I'm, I'm I really right. appreciate you that, that you brought some clarity and and I got a couple of tweets thanking you for doing that this morning, uh, and they used that word clarity to the situation in, in this year. Thank you again, Professor Small. Thank you, Brother Carl. And my voice made it through the two hours. <laughs> yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yes, he, he was struggling, folks, with his voice. Didn't think he would make it. But uh, the, the ancestors are uh, there watching over you because they know you have this great information that our people need to know. Because, like I mentioned, most of the people on this side of the, of the Atlantic Ocean, we don't know what's going on. We hear, we hear about the plane crash from Pagosian, and we, he's in Africa, dealing in Africa, and he's dealing with Putin. We don't know the intricacies, you know, what's going on. And I thank you for, for as uh, the tweeter said, for bringing some clarity to the situation this morning. Thank you again, Professor Small. Thank you, brother. Peace and blessings. And Professor Small, before, before we let you go, uh, Dr. J, how's Dr. J doing? He's doing good. I went by to see him last week. He's doing better than me, you know. And, you know, he's getting around. He's speaking. He's on panels, and he's going around to different events. But he really is doing well. Physically, he's doing very well. Good to hear that, because every time I talk to you, they they always tell me, ask him about Dr. J. They won't find about Dr. Lenny Jeffries. So when are you going to have Dr. Jennifer Jeffries back on the radio? I said, like, because if those of you who don't know, he had some health challenges. So I said, I'll check with, with Professor Small, because I know that's his running buddy. He knows. If anybody knows, you will know. So thank you for the update. Yes, but okay. before I let you go, how can folks reach you? Are you on social media, Professor Small? Yes, sir. They can, uh, even though they keep kicking me off Facebook. <laughs> Um, ProfessorSmallAfricanWorld.com, ProfessorSmallAfricanWorld.com, or you can just find me on, on, on Instagram, just put in Professor Small, it'll pop up, or if you want to look at YouTube, there's about a hundred or more good lectures on there, just put in Professor Small YouTube channel and it'll pop up, but Professor right. Small African World, you can communicate with me, you know, as often right. as you wish. Thank you, Professor Small. Thank you for sharing all this information with us. Um, folks, let me just say this. Yes, if you're on the late train and you want to find out what's going on in Niger with Bergosian and, and Burkina Faso and the other Francophone nations, you need to get a copy of this podcast and you'll understand what's going on. Because a lot of stuff that Professor Small talked to us about, this, many of us were hearing it for the first time because we didn't understand the subtleties of the fights that was going on in Francophone Africa. All right, it's six minutes after the top of the hour. Let's say good morning now to Maryland State Public Defender Natasha Darty. Uh, attorney, not Darty, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. How are you today? Excellent. How about yourself? How are you doing this morning? I am doing well, despite these uh, challenging times that we're in in regards to criminal justice. Yes, it is. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, too, is because the, it looks like it is, and maybe you can tell us better, a, a rise in the incarceration of our, our children, our, our, our youngsters. Seems like, a, a, you know, a lot, we, we, do have, we do have some good young people out there, but there, were quite, there are a few 
incorrigible out there who are causing some problems and giving a bad name for all black youngsters and brown youngsters. Uh, are you seeing an increase in the incarceration rate of our young people? It, um, overall, Maryland has been uh, notorious in terms of its incarceration of black um, and, and brown people. And I would say to you that attempts have been made to reform that because in 2022, Maryland was named amongst the worst human rights offenders um, in the country for the treatment of children in the criminal legal system. So in 2022, uh, the Juvenile Justice Reform Act was passed to try to um, address that, but that did not come into effect until October of last year. So uh, we're just starting uh, to implement that. So we'll see how well Maryland uh, moves to a positive, especially when we talk about the, the treatment of children, and we're talking about the treatment of black and brown children. Can you explain what the Juvenile Justice Reform Act is? What does it do? So uh, in uh, 2022, the Maryland General Assembly passed the Juvenile Justice Reform Act, and we commonly call it the JJRA. And essentially, it established uh, time periods for uh, one of the things it did was establish time periods for uh, children on probation. So, for example, for a misdemeanor, uh, the initial time is uh, six months, but then you can extend it uh, to up to a year. For a felony, uh, establish the limit of a year, but then it can be extended up to two years. And this was um, extremely important because prior to the enactment of the JJRA, we had two-thirds of children in Maryland um, that were basically committed um, in jail, sitting in jail, and they were doing so for a mere um, misdemeanor. Uh, so there was a great deal of unnecessary incarceration of our children. And it was important that this act was put into place so that we could limit that unnecessary incarceration of children. Uh, nine after the top of the hour, uh, Attorney Dati, what age are we talking about here? What's the youngest? So essentially in Maryland, uh, children 13 years and over can face charges in juvenile court. However, elementary and middle school children as young as 10 years old can be prosecuted for more serious offenses. And I'm talking about like the assault, first degree, those type of offenses. You can be charged as young as 10 years old in Maryland. And charged as an adult or, or as a juvenile? You charge as a juvenile. Because remember, we're, we're talking about a 10-year-old. We're uh, elementary and middle school children. Uh, and that's what they are. They're children. We don't want to put them... And when you're charged as an adult, you're, you're essentially uh, have the potential to be in an adult system. And we don't want uh, our 10-year-olds in institutions with our 25-year-olds. Yeah, and at 10 after the hour, you know, in Baltimore, the two high-profile cases involving young people, uh, the, the Barclays housing shooting and, of course, the Squeeze-A-Kid incident as well. And I think one of the young men, actually, the Barclays... Uh, was it no the squeeze a kid uh, youngster? They they tried him as an adult. Uh, how did you see that? So essentially, I think that that was um, a tragedy on both sides. It was a tragedy in, in terms of uh, the life that was lost, and we had two lives lost. We had the person that was shot 
but we also had the the, the person that was um, convicted. And then you think about uh, the families on on both sides. That was a lose lose situation across the board. Is there a way to grab these youngsters before they get into the system? Is there a way so make your job a little easier? You don't have to try to figure out how to prosecute them, prosecute them as adults or or, uh, or in juvie. Is there a way to grab them once it, it, you know can people identify these young people? Hey, they're going down the wrong road. Is there a mechanism set up to help those children? So, so essentially, they they're the, the solution is out there. Uh, we just need to take hold of it and, and implement it because we know um, through a data and, and research that services and support is what reduces arrest, rearrest, and keeps kids out of the criminal um, legal system. When you look at, at, at the children that we're talking about, um, they come from certain neighborhoods, they come from uh, certain backgrounds. Um, traditionally, those are the marginalized na- neighborhoods um, where they're they're living in poverty. They have experienced trauma themselves. Either they they've um, uh, seen loved ones been um, hurt or shot or killed or abused, or they themselves have suffered some type type of abuse. They live in communities where there are no health services. Um, you think about the recent shooting. Um, in Brooklyn neighborhood in, in, in Baltimore. My question is how many of those children, how many of those people involved were able to get any type of health, mental health services? What happens when you leave that type of trauma um, un, untreated? You look at these kids, they're neighborhoods that have the poorest um, uh, schools, the, the least number of economic opportunities. That's where the solutions are to helping these um, children, to providing support and services so that they don't get uh, involved um, in, in situations. So they're not carrying guns because they're fear. Children carry guns because most often because they don't feel safe. So how are we creating situations where they feel um, where they feel safe? We must create situations where they also understand how to better deal with their emotions. Um, and when we're talking about a young person whose mind is not fully develop until age 25, that is where the solution is. Gotcha. 13 at the top of the hour, uh, attorney, doctor. We've got to take a short break here, check the traffic. When we come back, though, uh, explain to us what's the difference with the, the, the uh, young people who live in the more affluent neighborhoods than the, than the ones who live in the inner cities, as far as your office is concerned, if you were in deciding to whether they, they uh, you know, going to break the law, if they're going to go left or going to go right. What are the basic differences? If you can explain that to our audience, we'd appreciate it. As I mentioned, it's 14 minutes after the top of the hour. We could take a quick break, get caught up on the traffic and weather in our different cities. We'll be back with Maryland's uh, state uh, Maryland State public defender. Her name is Natasha Dartik. You've heard her before. She's been on before. If you've got questions, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. <laughs> 20 minutes after the top of the hour, we're joined this morning by Maryland State Public Defender, Natasha Dartik. You've heard her here before. Uh, she's just letting us know about the incarceration rate for young black and brown children just off the chain in the state of Maryland. Maryland was known for the state uh, leading the, the country in uh, locking up young people. 
But now the Juvenile uh, Justice Reform Act is getting to play. Hopefully those numbers will, will decline a bit. I'll let you finish your, your, uh, the question that we asked you prior, and then uh, if you can expound on the Juvenile Justice Reform Act, uh, what, the di- what the difference will make. And also Mark in Baltimore has got a question for you, uh, Council. So I'll let you finish your thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so essentially uh, we were talking about the disparities between the treatment of um, black um, children versus versus other children. And, and the problem um, essentially is, is historic because you think about the fact that um, in Maryland in the 1940s, uh, the age of majority was uh, codified to 18 with the exception of Baltimore City where um, it remained at the age of 16. And as a result of that, we saw black children from Baltimore City were incarcerated at a rate of about nine times higher than um, white children from outside the city. And in 2022, this continued to, we continue to see that because approximately 47% of Maryland's population um, is black, but yet 66% of commitments continue to come out of, out of, out of Baltimore city. So, so we see these effects from the laws are still uh, prevalent here here today, and we continue to incarcerate our black um, children at an alarming rate, especially when we compare them um, to to white children. Yeah, but uh, twenty two out the top. You mentioned Baltimore City has more. Why? Why is that? What are What are they doing right or, or doing or not doing it in Baltimore City? So, so again, we go back to the, to the issues of the concentrated areas of marginalized um, uh, communities, concentrated areas where there's a great deal of, of, of poverty. You think about um, Freddie Gray and the uprising um, in, in 2015 in Baltimore is a great example. Um, in that neighborhood of same town, Winchester, there was a great level of, of, of poverty. If you were to go back there today, it looks the very same way that it did back in, in, in 20, 2015. Right. There has been no investment, no uplifting of that community, of the people in that community. And that is an, an example of despite all the light that was shined on Freddie Gray and what happened in that community, we do not um, invest or uplift our people after after tragedy. All right. 24 after the top. As I mentioned, Mark's in Baltimore on line one. He's got a question for you. Mark, good morning. You're on with Attorney Dartique. Hey, good morning. How y'all doing? Um, let me just quickly say something about the Freddie Gray situation. Um, Barack Obama did, Carlson, $1.8 billion to uh, rehab that community. Our current uh, city council president was the, the councilman for that district, and that monies did not go to invest in that community because we be up in that community all the time. So let me say that. The Juvenile Justice um, Reform Act, uh, I live in Baltimore. Call it um, juvenile crime, juvenile carjackings, juvenile shootings, and all that kind of stuff is is up, 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 up. Shortly after that, that bill was passed, and uh, the state's attorney said it's the worst bill that that he ever had heard, you know, read. And and also, uh, P.M. Smith, who, who's a pastor and and was a defense attorney. Uh, said the same thing. They was in Annapolis, you know, but I told you, um, Carl, my neighbor came out the other day, uh, uh, her granddaughter, and it was two young 
African Americans in her vehicle. And thank God they didn't go over there because uh, it was a carjacking the other day where where man you right. know tried to stop him from stealing his grandson. Mark, and Mark, he Mark, died. Do, but the question, this is my question. Yeah, put in the question um, for for uh, okay, uh, I, 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 this is the question, and, and and also too, Carl, um, also too, um, the two thirds of those those fifteen thousand young people that's homeless is in the county. But this is my question. You said that. The young people, because um, most young people are doing the right thing as parents, let me say that. But the young people that you defend and stuff like that, they come from all, you know, messed up backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. So when you're public defending them and you know their situations, what do y'all have in place? What resources are there in place to help these young people so they uh, won't thanks, get in Mark. trouble when you won't have to defend them again? Thanks, Mark. Yeah. So, um, so thank you for, for the question. I, I do want to start by, by saying there's been a lot of comments in terms of the uh, Juvenile Justice um, Reform Act. However, um, those who are commenting are not as um, in, informed because, especially for us at the Office of the Public Defender, we are uniquely positioned to identify and address policies and systems that affect the lives of individuals within the community and across the state because we are in direct contact with the people in the communities throughout the throughout the state on on a daily daily basis. When we when we engage with clients at the office of, of the public defender, we engage in um, holistic advocacy because the reality is by the time that you you come um, to us, we understand and see that there's so many other underlying issues that brought you to the place where you're meeting us at, at the public uh, de, uh, defender's office. So we partner with um, um, outside um, programs to find um, resources for our clients. We have um, social workers. We have peer advocates at the office of the public defender that are part of the attorney team that helps in terms of uh, developing and addressing what the needs of our um, individual um, clients. Um, but we are we are advocates, and essentially we advocate on the behalf of the people that um, we we serve. We understand the needs of the people that 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 we serve. Um, however, we don't want them to come to us. We don't want people to have to be in need of. Um, uh, criminal uh, defense attorneys. So we believe and we're advocating that the solution is in, in the community. We need to provide um, better support for, for people that are um, experiencing trauma. We need to provide um, better um, health care. We need to be, provide economic opportunities for families um, in, in the um, community. We need to provide um, better uh, schooling because at the end of the day, we are still talking about children. Um, the, the conversation always seems to shift and the forget about that. We are talking about um, children, and we need to address children as uh, children. Yeah, good point. 28 after the top. Yeah, I got a tweet for you. Uh, if you're just waking up, I guess this is a Maryland State public defender. Her name is Natasha Dartik, uh, How proud Howard grad, Howard Law School. But here's a, here's a tweet question for you, uh, Natasha. Recently, during a town hall meeting with Mayor Scott and Brandon Worley, Worley mentioned he thought the kids' sentences are too short, and if they receive more time, they would not be repeat offenders. And the person says they're paraphrasing. Your thoughts? My, my Did you hear about the meeting? Um, 
I was not um, uh, present, nor did I um, hear any um, of the of the discussion. But I will speak in terms of um, mass incarceration. Decades upon decades, we have engaged in that practice of simply locking people up. And what we have seen is that it has not reduced crime. It has not changed um, the problems that that we have in our in our cities um, in in Maryland. And the thing is that you keep doing the same thing, but then expecting a, a, a different um, result. Simply locking people up is is not the uh, solution uh, to public safety. Addressing the underlying issues that put people in particular situations is the solution um, to, to public safety. We know that mass incarceration does not work. We know that mass incarceration has targeted black and brown communities. Um, so what we need to do is something different and, and approaches that actually work and support people and uplift um, communities. All right, I got another tweet for you, Tweeter, and Marvin's on deck. He's got a question for you. The second tweet says, the last time you were here, we talked about budget issues. Has your budget increased under Governor Moore? We uh, we did get um, additional um, resources under uh, Governor Moore, um, so we are thankful for that. But we are not where we um, need to be, especially con- considering that we handle about 80% of all the criminal uh, cases in the state of Maryland, and our, our workloads are um, excessive, and uh, we are in need of additional um, social workers and, and, and core staff members so that we can continue to do the great work that we do. But um, there's, there's more work that needs to be done, and we are advocating for additional resources. You need more attorneys? We always need more attorneys. Yeah, but we. But the thing is that um, we need more attorneys. But uh, but we work as a, as a, as a team. Um, so the attorneys are able to do the dynamic things that they do in the courtroom because we are supported by um, paralegals and secretaries and social workers. Um, so yes, we need more attorneys, absolutely, because we need those advocates in the courtroom. But we need the team that supports the um, attorneys um, as as well. And, and for folks who are listening, I got a bunch of folks got questions for you, but we come up on a break real soon. For folks who are listening, who, who how do they apply for those jobs? Are those jobs you say you need them? Are they available? They've been funded. Can people apply for them? How do they do that? I'm so glad you asked. We are actually for our um, attorneys. We are actively hiring uh, in in offices throughout the state of Maryland. We have 52 offices throughout the state of Maryland, from the beaches to the to the mountains. We are having a job fair at our training location in Lithicum on September 21st and, and 22nd. If you are on social media, uh, you can go to our, our OPD um, site on Instagram, which is uh, Maryland underscore OPD. And you can just click on the QR code, and it'll take you right into uh, the form uh, so you can um, pre-register. But we are uh, that is not the only way we're hiring, but it's the easiest and quickest way because we will be doing on-spot interviews. And um, if you are a qualified candidate, you can walk out of the, the job fair with a conditional offer. But we do have information on our website in terms of all the positions that are available. And we um, are hiring and we are looking 
for um, great people who uh, believe in the, the importance of supporting um, community and uh, believe in, in the work that we do. All right, 27 away from the top of there. I guess this Maryland State Public Defender. Her name is Natasha Dartik. Got a bunch of folks got questions for you, but we've got to step aside and get caught up on the latest news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, the information is power. Good morning again, family. It's one minutes away from the top of the hour with Maryland, uh, Maryland State uh, Public Defender. She's the top of the food chain here, folks. And Natasha Dati, uh, are you the first black female to hold this position? I am the first black person to hold the position. Yes. McDonald's is not new to chicken, so maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy, juicy fried chicken. Buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Okay, congratulations. Well, hold on a sec. Let me just remind the folks coming later this morning, we're going to speak with New York activist uh, Charles Barron. We're going to, as we continue our commemoration of Black August, he's going to do a salute to Latula Shakur. Also, uh, tomorrow's Friday, and this is another chance for, for you to free your mind and join us for another edition of Overflowing Friday. Think for yourself and reach out to us. Begin promptly at 6 a.m. Eastern Time right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. As I mentioned, got a bunch of folks who want to talk to you, Natasha. Let's start with Marvin calling from Baltimore. He's on line one. Marvin, good morning. You're on with Natasha Dartik. Good morning. How y'all doing? Uh only problem I just want to ask you is that simply why y'all don't never go after the parent instead of going after the kids and locking them up? Why don't you go after the parents and lock them up? Is it, is it a problem with that? All right. Thanks, Marvin. Counselor? So, um, first, um, as as public uh, defender, we um, only defend individuals who are um, charged, uh, charged with with, with crimes, we do not um, prosecute anyone. But just in general, in terms of the, the context to the question, I, I want people to keep in, in mind because, um, for example, you know, you think about uh, going after after the parents. The reality is, um, for the children um, in marginalized communities, they may be, for example, in a single parent household, and you may have a parent who essentially is working three jobs to keep, you know, to keep food on the table, to keep the lights on, to keep things together. So if I'm working uh, three jobs, there's going to be a period of time where I may not be home um, uh, to supervise. And, you know, children are children. Uh, I can think of, of myself and, and, you know, probably others out there. When, when, when we were 13 and 14, stuff that we did when our parents were not uh, not around, um, so I, I put that out there to just have the context that um, the solution is not simply shifting who we lock up, right? That, that's not where the, the, the solution is, is, is providing support 
um, so that our children, even if mom or dad is out, out at work, that they have a place to go. You know, Baltimore City is, is a prime example. You know, we complain, like, why are all the kids hanging out at, at the Inner Harbor? The real question is, why did we close all the places throughout the city where, where kids could go after school? Why did we um, stop creating after-school school programs so that kids have places to be? That's where the, the, the question um, should be. All right. Uh, 17 away uh, from the top of the hour, Maryland State Public Defender. As I mentioned, she's at the top of the food chain, first black. So congratulations again. Natasha Dautique is her name. Smitty's waiting for us in Baltimore. He's on line two. Smitty, you're on with Natasha Dautique. Yes, Carl. Thanks for taking my call. First, I want to thank Ms. Natasha for being able to understand what is needed. And it seems as though that the resources that is needed in the communities are not being placed in the community. So my question to you, Ms. Tasha, how do we get the people to put the resources in the community? As you have just stated, they're closed things that teenagers need to be doing, and there's nothing for them to do, but money had been given an amount of a total of X amount of dollars for a depressed area like with Freddie Gray uh, with living and nothing has been done in that, in that community. And all we want to do is arrest, arrest and call and victimize people who don't have anything that is in their community that is viable for them to work with. How do we get that resource money that has been given to the, the government to be released to these depressed communities. All right. Thanks, so, Mitty. Yes, thank you. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's the basic premise that um, the, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the most grease, right? Um, we have to, 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 to come out um, as, as community um, and, and, and demand the, the, the services uh, for, our, for, for our, our neighborhoods. Um, when there are meetings uh, taking place, you know, in, in terms of you know, show up and, and advocating for it. When you hear about um, certain bills being uh, proposed, um, you know, joining um, task force, joining local um, groups, and being present and, and vocalizing that um, the very thing that you're saying that uh, money has been al- allocated, but um, I'm in the community. We don't see it. Where is it? And, and, and demanding it and being loud and continuous a, a, about it, because it's when we um, speak up and advocate on behalf of ourselves, that is where you see um, a change comes. So I, I encourage people um, to write letters to your uh, various assembly um, members, your local senators, your local um, de- delegates. And just show up at these town meetings, show up at uh, various um, events, and let it be known that uh, the work that they have dedicated to do, that you expect it to be done. Okay. Thank you, Smitty. 800-450-7876, or 14 away from the top there. Melvin's on line three, calling from Baltimore City. Melvin, you're on with Natasha Dautique. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Congratulations, Attorney Dartique, on your appointment. Uh, my question is, Governor Moore um, was taken out of the parole process by the law passed by the General Assembly that life is no longer have to be evaluated. And the, the, the authority goes back to the Maryland Parole Commission. 
But my question is, recently I found information that the governor's office still is involved in that process. Is that true? And I have another question. Um, you kind of got me on that. I, I know that um, there has been back and forth through the various uh, sessions to remove that power from, um, not in particular uh, Governor Moore, but just out of the hands of the governor itself, because our, our governors change every so many, so many years, um, and put it back in terms of the commission, because essentially that's the group that evaluates the, the, the individual. And, and also it takes it out of the politics of versus if the person's Republican or, 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 or Democrat. Um, Your second question, Melvin? Okay. Um, yes. Uh, my, I have a friend who's serving a life sentence, and he's being represented by someone in your office, Mrs. McGulf. I think that's how her name is pronounced. And um, he needs a risk assessment, and the list is like, He's like 50th on the list. What can the general public do to try to get uh, 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 funds to what apartment, uh, what department to try to get more people doing that type of evaluation? So, um, so in terms of uh, the the risk uh, assessment, that sounds like uh, something that is being done through the uh, Department of uh, Corrections, perhaps. Um, and, and again, it's a matter of uh, manpower, often that we see the delays in terms of getting things uh, for our um, incarcerated individuals is, is a, an issue of, of manpower. Um, and we continue to, to advocate on, on behalf of the timeliness of, 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 getting it, of getting it done so that person can be assessed and that we can go to the, the next step, because usually the assessment is the first step of the, of, of, of the process. Um, but that's a resource right. issue that's outside of the public defender's office. All right, 12 away from the top. Let's keep moving. Uh, Tyrone's on line four, also in Baltimore. Tyrone, you're on with Natasha Dautik. Is Tyrone there on line four? Yes, can you hear me? I'm not. Oh, there he is. Go ahead, Tyrone. Yes. Uh, uh, good morning, Doc. And uh, Cole Nelson, good topic. Uh, <clears throat> and yes, there has been things done with the Freddie Gray money. They renovated the police station in that neighborhood, and they also painted the police cars black. Okay? So they have done something with the money. Um, it, wasn't, it was worthless as far as uh, the criminal justice system is concerned. But my main thing is, I'm hearing all this talk about uh, um, lack of opportunity, and uh, all the and poverty and all this stuff, but nobody's actually connecting the dots to actually see that we can develop summer jobs programs, at school jobs programs for these kids. And I also believe, I strongly believe that uh, if you if you're incarcerated, you should have a trade or you should be placed in a job as a condition of parole, of, of early parole or parole period, like that you get placed in a job training program where you'll be making living wages when you get out of that program if you want to be released from jail. Because when you release somebody from jail without a job, you're setting them up for failure. That's why That's why the mass incarceration thing has not been corrected is because we haven't um, applied any repair in regards to people being able to find viable living. Now, I've seen and I've worked with people who have been incarcerated and have been in a life of crime like selling drugs, and I've seen people stop doing that, but I've never seen it without them getting a job at a living wage. Now, I'm not making excuses, 
but but I'm talking me personally. I don't know about anybody else, but I've, I've never seen people be re- fully rehabilitated and re-added to society until, unless and until they had a job making a decent wage where they felt like they didn't have to resort to crime. So I think a big part of this thing, to turn this thing around from the mass incarceration days, is to make sure that we have viable training and, and make them responsible, too. If they don't complete the training or whatever, you send their asses back to jail. But I don't see just letting people uh, catch a release. It's not working, and, and it has never worked, and never will work. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, Tyrell, for your chance to respond. Natasha uh, Dautique, your thoughts. All right. Uh, Kevin, can you uh, let, uh, hang up on line four for us? We're getting feedback here. All right. Uh, Attorney Dautique, can you respond? The reality is that um, there is um, little to no programming in the Department of, of Corrections. So that when individuals are being released, they are actually released worse off than when they enter the, the, the institution, because the majority of the time in the institution is, is idle, um, idle time. And essentially, we know that that is nothing but an environment um, that breeds um, ne- negativity. And so that so the, so the conversation is definitely about um, what processes and things can we put in place when we're talking about um, reentry so that individuals do not um, reoffend. So, um, so it is a- about creating um, opportunities and thinking about reentry before an individual um, is, is released. So again, it's about um, communities speaking up, reaching out to their delegates and, and senators and saying that, you know what, we need things that are um, supporting communities and what laws are in place or what laws can we put in place that, um, that, that speak to that? Because those individuals, it is true that, that come out, that, that, that have jobs, that have stable um, housing, the rate of recidivism drops uh, dramatically. And so what, what does it need, is Tyron's question, what does it need to have that done, though? What, what, do we, what do we need to do? Do we need to make some phone calls? What, what, what's the issue? Absolutely. It needs it needs to be the, the, the community that is most effective needs to, to, to speak out because the reality is that those who are in the ear of uh, the the lawmakers and the decision makers, they're the ones who you see that they're getting what they want. So the community has to be tapped in. We have to be advocating. We do. We, we should be um, making phone calls and, 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 and writing um, letters and, and voicing our uh, c- concern, um, especially in, in Baltimore City. You have a large number of individuals who are, are released from facilities who end up back in, 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 in Baltimore City. Um, and you, you need to have those supports for when people are, are, are released. Um, but, but the communities have, have to speak up. You have to reach out to your senators. You have to reach out to, to the delegates and say, you know, what really matters to you? What do you actually need? Um, and, and do so with urgency and frequency. All right, hold that thought right there. Six away from the top there. We've got to take a quick break and check the traffic and weather again. Money Mike's got a question for you. Uh, this is the Maryland State Public Defender Attorney. She's uh, she's at the top. She's the Maryland State Public Defender, I should say. She, she is an attorney uh, from Howard University. And Natasha Dautique is her name. I'd like to speak to her. 
800-450-7876. Your calls in four minutes in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB in the DMV. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. A minute after the top of the hour, our guest is the Maryland State Public Defender. Her name is Natasha Dartik. We also have Charles Barron, and our next guest is on deck. So I'm going to ask you guys to uh, shorten up on the questions, and, uh, and Counselor, if you can shorten up on the response, we'll appreciate it as well. Let's go to Money Mike on line one in Baltimore. Money Mike, your question for Natasha Dartik. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Natasha Dartik. How are you doing? Good morning. Well, thanks. Okay, first, attorney, I have a, a question for you. Are you aware that Baltimore leads the nation in drug overdoses? I am aware that yeah. there, I am aware there is a drug um, use problem in Baltimore, but throughout the state of Maryland. All right. Well, Baltimore leads the nation, not just Baltimore or Maryland. It leads the nation, and the reason why I ask you that: Are you aware that if a child can't read by the third grade, their likelihood of succeeding in life is limited. If a child can't do multiplication by the fourth grade, they're pretty much lost at school. Uh, so I see the problem that first, we as a group of people need to get our priorities straight and make sure our children can read and write, not at school, but at home. Do you agree or disagree? And I'll take your answer off air. Thanks, Mike. Counselor? The um, the community and the, the, the parents together, um, essentially, it's important to provide the, the, the support. One cannot exist without the other. All right. Three after the top. Yeah, Leo's on line two in Baltimore. Leo, real quick, your question for uh, the, the Maryland State Public Defender. Yes. Good morning, Miss Natasha. Uh, I wanted to know if you have had experiences with successful programs that of an apprenticeship and job training nature. I'm talking about paid apprenticeship for poor children who have to break the cycle of poverty and can't do so unless there's job training and placement, as well as a stipend or paid to make it happen. What's been your experience of successful programs? Can you identify successful programs? Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Leo. I I can um, I I can name uh, two in 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 particular um, in Baltimore City. One of my favorite places is the Center uh, for Urban Families over in West Baltimore, and um, outside Baltimore City um, in Hagerstown, there's a program called uh, Gatekeepers. Um, but in addition, there are additional apprenticeships that I know um, the governor's office has now um, uh, initiated uh, that recently took um, uh, effect this August. Um, So there are more opportunities being um, created. But in particular, um, Center for Urban Families in Baltimore City, I can name off the top of my head, and Gatekeepers in Hagerstown are two great programs. All right, four off the top. Uh, Alex and Alexandra, uh, can you make it quick for us, Alex? He's on line four. Yes, I should. Yes, I sure will call. Good morning um, uh, to your guests and the worldwide listeners. Is there any future plans to open the Charles Hickey School? Is there any future of that? All right. Thanks, Alex. 
Ah, you are. There have been issues in terms of the Hickey School in particular, um, the treatment and, and, and trauma that has been imposed on, on, on children. Um, that is under the auspices of the Department of Juvenile Services. I don't know what the status of the Hickey School is. All right. Five out of time. As I mentioned, the uh, activist Charles Barron from New York City is on deck. we got to get to Charles in a moment. Before we let you go, though, Natasha Dautik, you mentioned that there are some job openings, not just for attorneys, but support staff, too, in your department, uh, your agency. So how can they apply for those jobs? Yeah, thank you. So um, if you are interested in any position with the um, Office of the Public Defender, you can go on our website, which is www.opd.state.md.us. But if you are a licensed attorney who wants to join a dynamic team, um, you can show up at our job fair. will be on September 21st um, and 22nd. You can go on our website or you can go on Instagram to get more information about our job fair. And on Instagram, we are Maryland underscore um, OPD. Well, I want to thank you, not just being the first black, holding the position of Maryland State Public Defender, but the fact that you're also fighting for our children, you know, keep them out, out of a, the adult uh, uh, system and keep them in the juvenile system where many of them belong. But thank you again, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you as well for... Um, hosting this this conversation and getting the information out to the people and keeping us all educated on all the issues. Thank you. Thank you. That's Natasha Dautique, folks. She's the Maryland State Public Defender, first black to hold that position, and this is already making changes. 800-450-7876. You're going to need that number next for our next guest, Charles Barron. He's an activist out of New York City, Brooklyn. Charles Barron, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, sir, and it's always an honor to be on with you and your community. I really appreciate the opportunity. Good morning. Good morning. We appreciate you because, you know, I understand you're going to have a function or an event for Matula Shakur. You know, many people don't know who Matula Shakur is. Many of our listeners haven't followed because he's been, he was incarcerated for a long time, a long time, a long time. So uh, can you give us some background before we talk about the event, who this person is that people keep talking about, Matula Shakur? You know, every time the name Matulu Shakur comes up, the first thing that people say about Dr. Matulu Shakur is that he was the father, some say stepfather, to Tupac Shakur, and he was married to the great one and only Afeni Shakur, who was a part of the Panther 21, a very good friend of Inez, my wife and I, and so was Matulu, and so was Tupac. The Shakur clan was Asada Shakur, Matulu Shakur, Lumumba Shakur, Zaid Shakur. All of these Shakurs were members of our Black Liberation Movement. So when we think of Matulu Shakur, the first thing that comes up is a Tupac Shakur and a Faini Shakur. However, Dr. Matulu Shakur was more than that. He was a highly esteemed acupuncturist, a healer and a revolutionary leader in the Black Liberation Movement, particularly with the Black Liberation Army and also with a, a group called the BANA, the Black Acupuncture Advisory Association of North America. 
and the Harlem Institute of Acupuncture, both establishing during a time when acupuncture faced legal challenges in New York. Dr. Matulu Shakur, he went to Canada and China to learn acupuncture. And then along with the young lord, Dr. Matulu Shakur, they had a program at Lincoln Hospital where hundreds, if not thousands, of our brothers and sisters who were caught up in the drug a pandemic in the 1960s, he cured them. And that's why he was mainly known as a healer. In 1988, facing a profound legal ordeal, he was convicted and claimed, although he denies the charges, that he was involved in a series of expropriation actions in Connecticut and New York during a Brinks robbery where officers were killed. And he was con- they charged him with being the mastermind of that, and they also charged him with being the mastermind of releasing or freeing Asada Shakur, who is now free in Cuba. They say he masterminded that. These are the things that he spent 36 years in prison for, 36 years. And in that time when he was incarcerated, he came up with the Thug Life um um, social movement, and that was a positive thing. It wasn't a negative with Tupac. He helped the rappers. They respected him highly to get more positive in their lyrics. And he was very influential in New York City's so-called gangs or street organizations. He was to New York City and these street organizations as Fred Hampton was in Chicago to the street organizations where Chacha Jimenez and the Young Lords worked there, and he worked closely with Felipe Luisiano and the Young Lords in New York City. He worked closely with the Black Panther Party. He was very, very known as a freedom fighter and one of the founders of the New African People's Organization and the Malcolm X grassroots movement. Dr. Shakur influenced so many people in our movement. He was a strong supporter of African independence of a nation within a nation. And his famous saying was free the land by any means necessary. And he was loved and respected. And he highly respected people like Malcolm X, Queen Mother Moore, him and uh, Chokwe Lumumba, the great lawyer from Detroit who made his transition, Robert Williams, who was very known. And he was very, very, uh, influenced by these people, uh, Baba Herman Ferguson, who was a longtime activist in New York City, very close with Malcolm X and, and all of our movements. So Dr. Matulu Shakur was one of the unsung heroes and one a person that most of us don't know about. But he was, I mean, he was in, extremely influential. Personally, I had a very good, close relationship with him. I was really honored that my son, Jawanza, and I went to visit him when he was incarcerated in Atlanta. And my son said that was the most profound, impacting moments in his life, his time where he spoke with Matulu Shakur. And I also was very uh, impressed and, and, and just, you know, it was incredible. This man has been in there for 30-some-odd years. He wasn't talking about how you all going to, 
get me out of here. He said, listen, man, I think we should start a truth and reconciliation here in America and hold these people accountable. I'm still anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, and I'm still fighting for freedom for the other political prisoners. So you know what happens with a lot of uh, us, and he had to go underground early because of his acupuncture work, because of his love for his people and wanted freedom for his people and said, we're new Africans. We're not the Africans that we once were when we were on the continent. We're new Africans and we want to be independent. And just like the Black Panther Party said that we want to control all of the institutions that govern our lives and our community. The number one edict in the 10-point program of the Black Panther Party is that we want self-determination. We want to control the destiny of our beloved black communities. That's who Matulu Shakur was. He was respected by elected officials, by activists, by artists, by doctors, by lawyers, by all those in the movement. Um, He was just an incredible soul that sorely missed, and he made his transition because he had, I think, stage five cancer. So he peacefully passed away on Friday, July 7th, uh, 2023, at the uh, ripe old age of 72 years old. He was courageously battling um, a, a blood cancer that damages the bones and the kidneys since 2019. And that's what I, I mean, I am so livid at the system. He was released on parole from the federal prison, affording him the opportunity to spend his remaining days surrounded by his loved ones, but they release you when they know you only have a few little time left in life. Right. So he had and hold the thought right there, uh, Charles. We're going to take a short break here and uh, check the mm-hmm. traffic and weather at different cities. So thank you for filling in the, the gaps for us about uh, Mutula Shakur. There's much more to the man, as we know. 14 minutes after the top of the hour, as, men- as I mentioned, we're going to check the uh, traffic and weather for our commuters this morning. We'll be back in four minutes, though, with Charles Brown and talking about Mutula Shakur as part of our Black August here on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour, New York activist uh, Charles Barron, as we continue our commemoration of Black August. Uh, today we're looking at Dr. Matula Shakur. There's going to be a big event for him this weekend. And my question for you, uh, Charles Barron, because you, you said you went to see him when he was incarcerated. And all these stems where they, he was implicated in the shootout on the Jersey Turnpike in the early 80s. Was he bitter? Did he think that he was behind bars because they really wanted they really wanted Asada Shakur? They, they want that's who they really wanted. Did he understand that? Was he bitter about the, the whole setup? He didn't have a bitter bone in his body, a bitter spirit in his soul. He was so, oh man, he was motivating us. He was so highly spirited. Doctor Mutula Shakur is a, a unique, uh, incredible individual. All that he had gone through, he's sitting in there with cancer and not looking like he'd ever see the daylight or be with his loved ones again. And he's sitting there telling me, come on, Charles, man, y'all got to make sure you, you organize and we got to get a truth and, and, and reconciliation commission and we got to free our political prisoners. And I love my family. Make sure you, you, you know, take care of my family. And he never, ever said, get me out of here. Never. So he was an incredible revolutionary, and that's why, you know, we say that he was the 
the heart and soul of the new African nation. And he uh, was a profound, ultimate uh, revolutionary, like none that I've ever met before. He, I mean, his life was totally committed to the movement, and he didn't have a selfish bone in his body. 36 years, you know, even when he was in, he influenced so many uh, lives while he was incarcerated. And this is the bad thing about the system. You know, when you get hit with 25 years to life, that means that after 25 years, you're eligible for parole. Parole is not based upon your initial crime. You can't change that. So if parole was based on that, nobody would ever get out. Parole is based upon your time served, and he served impeccable time. He uh, liberated the lives of so many incarcerated brothers and sisters. He raised their uh, brothers. He raised their consciousness. He made sure that they were taken care of medically, even more so than himself. So he had they had no reason to keep hitting them with two more ten times until he spends about 30-some-odd years. He should have been out. And they only let him out when he had, you know, stage five cancer, and they knew he wasn't going to make it much longer. And by the way, he was born Jarrell Wayne Williams on August 8, 1950, in Baltimore, Maryland. That's where he was born, and he was raised in Jamaica, Queens, and his mother was blind, and while he was in the helping his mother navigate an unjust social service system, that's when he raised his political consciousness at the tender age of 16, and he joined the new African independence movement in the late 60s. He actively participated in the revolutionary action movement, RAM, and then, of course, the other things I told you about, the Republic of New Africa, he was a citizen of the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa, the RNA, and as I said, he was a leader in the Black Liberation Army and worked closely with the Black Panther Party and NAPO, New African People's Organization, and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. He was a pillar and strength for all of us. So, so 25 at the top of that. What was it, though, that, that made him go down that road? I mean, he, you mentioned he was born in Baltimore. He could have just been a, a, just a regular uh, a chiropractor and doing his practice, doing his thing in New York in the Bronx area where he was. What made him, uh, what was it, was it something, uh, you know, seismic that, that turned him around? Was it the Eureka movement, moment? Or, did, or did, was it sort of gradual, just I started identifying with, quote, unquote, so-called revolutionaries? Well, you know, it started with his blind mother when he saw how the social system was treating his blind mother. I mean, that really made him livid that this system wouldn't take care of a blind person, his mother. And I think that ticked him off to the point where he became more sensitive to suffering and oppression. And then as his consciousness was raised, you know, in the 60s, you know, being around Malcolm and 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 Herman Ferguson and Sonny Abubadika Carson was also very influential uh, on him. So these are people in Harlem and Brooklyn and Queens, New York and across the country that began to raise his consciousness. And like most of us, revolutionaries don't drop out of the moon, as Asada Shakur says. Revolutionaries are born by the conditions that are around them. That's what makes us revolutionaries. The love for our people, not the hate and not the desire for violence, and but by the love of our people. And you see a system, the richest one in the whole world, and how we're suffering unnecessarily 
that causes one to commit to a life of revolutionary activity. And you want to do everything peacefully. You want to have change by just citing to the system how bad they're doing us. You want to have change by marching, demonstrating, voting, all of those means. But when those means are ignored, violence is inevitable, whether it's spontaneous and, and uprisings and resistance or whether it's organized and more urban and organized. It is inevitable if all peaceful means for justice and change and for liberation are ignored, violence is inevitable. All right, 28 after the top of the hour. Norman's joining us from Toronto, Canada, on line one. Norman, you're on with Charles Barron. Uh, how are both of you uh, brothers doing? I wanted to uh, ask Charles Barron, uh, had he heard anything about uh, Maxwell Curtis Stanford, a.k.a. Muhammad Ahmed, who was uh, one of the founders of the Revolutionary Action Movement, and I believe he uh, worked with uh, Matulu Shakur. Absolutely. He was a, a hero to all of us as well. And I think they all got together and they had that um, African Liberation Day that happens in May. They all organized that. So they were very influential uh, to each other. And he was another giant in our movement. I heard from him yesterday. He is in uh, uh, he's in, 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 in Philadelphia and he is uh, he's in a home. Uh, hmm. Mm. He's still, yeah, he's still, he's still, uh, I can get you the information, you know, uh, okay. by other means. Yeah, but he's, he's, mm -hmm. he's, uh, he's still there. There, there. there was a newspaper uh, that he was instrumental in putting out. It came out of Toronto, Canada for the 1972 or 74 African Liberation Day. And right. it was a, a, a publication that was, that it was sent all over, all over, all over the Western Hemisphere. And uh, mm -hmm. he edited that, and uh, you know, talked. We talked about the Cameroon, so on and so forth. But what I wanted to say mm -hmm. is that he was a great track star. He uh -huh. and, his, and his brother William Sales, uh, they mm -hmm. ran the, they ran track. And uh, Muhammad Ahmed was the ran the third leg, and Bill Bill Sales uh, ran was the anchorman. But Bill <laughs> Sales wrote a great book on Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. uh, we are William Sales Booker. I'm having a senior moment, but uh, a great book uh, which I recommend. No, the book was on uh, Malcolm X and the African Organization of Afro American Unity. I recommend mm -hmm. that to all the listeners. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. all right. You're welcome. Thanks, Take care, sir. Uh, all righty. Thirty minutes after the top there. Uh, Charles, let me ask you this: though. Are you concerned that are there any more young revolutionaries out there? You know, you mentioned that how young uh, Dr. Matula Shakur was when he started and everyone around him was at the same age. Are you seeing the young, the, the, this generation, younger generation having the, the same revolutionary spirit as the brothers and sisters had back in, back in the late seventies, early eighties? Well, it's difficult for that to happen because these times are different. You know, back in those days, you had the Black Power Movement, Black Nationalist Ram, the NAACP, the Nation of Islam, the Black Panther Party. You know, you had a host of group, Republic of a New Africa. There was revolution was in the air. I mean, it, it cultural revolution, revolutionary nationalist, everything was in the air. So James Brown had to change his process and get an Afro and say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. 
They had to rap more positive because there was movement. Aretha Franklin had to say respect because the movements, and she had a gay lay and an African outfit on. So movements influence culture. Movements influence uh, hip-hop music. Movement influence actors and activists. And even you know, a guy like Sammy Davis, who we all consider to sell out when he hugged Nixon, whatever, but he also <laughs> contributed to the Black Panther Party. You know, Harry Belafonte and all of them, they got involved in the civil rights movement. This is what's lacking today the movements to influence young people because a lot of those movements, and this is why it's important to understand Matulu Shakur and all the prisoners of war and political prisoners, their history, because the COINTEL program, the counterintelligence program of the FBI, wiped out every organization, murdered Malcolm and Martin, uh, the Panthers were all in jail and political prisoners, the Black Liberation Army. They, no matter whether you was the prince of nonviolence and integration, Martin Luther King, they murdered you. Or you were the king of self-defense and by any means necessary, Malcolm X, they murdered you. So when we get into the 21st century, there are few people left, like Matulu and some of the political prisoners, still have an influence over young people, particularly in hip-hop. And then you have people like Amali Yeshitela and the uh, African People's Socialist Party. The FBI is coming down on them now because they've been able to influence young people and have more revolutionaries develop. We in Operation Power, we were able to win local seats with black radicals like Inez Barron and Charles Barron and other Though of those who are around us, we have an organization that, yes, we use in the electoral arena as a tactic, but we are revolutionaries. You're not going to be able to vote our way to freedom, but it surely can be very, very beneficial and influential on the younger generation. So I see some young people being inspired by that in the Malcolm X grassroots organization. I see some young people inspired by that and some of the local activism that's happening in New York. I know we have a lot of young people in Operation Power, but it's not as pervasive as it was in the 60s because we don't have that kind of pervasive movement yet. We're building toward that. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. All right, hold that thought right there. We've got to take our last look at the news, traffic, and weather. I just should mention that COINTELPRO, and as you know, is, is still here. He's still, uh, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, still pitting black people against each other, and, and mm-hmm. some people are falling for it. But anyway, as I mentioned, we've got to take a last look at the traffic and news, traffic, and weather. And uh, a tweeter had the question, wanted to know, why did he pick the name Shakur, and why others picked the name Shakur? If you can respond to that when we get back, I'd appreciate it. And also tell us the event that's taking place uh, for uh, Dr. Matula Shakur. Folks, I guess.
guest is uh, Charles Barnes, an actress out of New York City. We'll be back with him in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us all morning long. Two minutes away from the top of the hour with Charles Barron. Charles, a, a former lawmaker in Brooklyn, New York, is now an activist, and they're having a big event for Dr. Matula Shakur this weekend. Before we go back to him, let me just remind you that tomorrow is Friday, and it gives you another edition of Open Phone Friday. Think for yourself, free your mind, and reach out to us. We begin promptly at 6 a.m. Eastern time right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. And the question the tweeter uh, tweeted for you, Charles, is uh, what made uh, him, and speaking, I guess speaking uh, uh, Dr. Shakur, what made him pick the name Shakur and why others picked the name Shakur? Well, you know, in the 1960s, a lot of people, uh, a lot of us, decided that we would adapt African culture and some, you know, uh, Islamic names because we were rejecting the Europeanization of our people. And so we rejected the shirt and tie. We wore dashikis. We rejected um, the uh, purification of white history, and we fought for black history. We had Kwanzaa. We had um, African Liberation Day. So we were fighting because culture was a weapon. So a lot of people changed their names to African names. And one of the things out of the 60s that we did do, we had a cultural revolution as well as a political and economic revolution. And spiritual, it all has to be combined in one. Inez and I, with Charles and Inez Barron, but our African name is Shomari and Kamara Baruti. Shomari means forceful and Kamara means experienced and Baruti means teacher. So we changed our names to reject the Europeanization of us as a, a black people and African people. And then I might want to add also that when we said black power in the 60s, we did all of that. We got black, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I'm young, gifted, and black. And we had a, a Kaiwa Ida Theory, and we had Kwanzaa, and we had Black History Month, the coldest day of the month, shortest month of the year, all of that, but we didn't get the power. So now in the 21st century, this is a battle for power, which is why we got into the electoral arena, because you can't ignore state power. But don't turn into no Uncle Tom sellout Negroes in the Democratic Party and front for a colonial capitalist system because you're getting people jobs and things of that nature. But we got into the assembly and the city council. In the state assembly, we were able to get a letter to the parole board to have three political prisoners freed. One was Herman Bell, Jalil Montague, and Seth Hayes, who made his transition after he got out. So, you know, you can do a lot in the, in the political arena. We made them pass the first uh, reparations uh, bill in both the Senate and the Assembly. They're waiting for them to sign it. It is not the bill we wanted. They watered it down to give the state more power than we wanted the state to have, but it got passed. So we're looking at the things that could happen. People in the December 12th movement, uh, Viola Plummer and Omawali Clay, worked very closely with us in our offices. We were able to hire them and, and work full-time, at least get some benefits and things like that to organize in our community. So um, we're very, 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 very um, um, big on getting black radicals into the electoral arena. You know, we had our black radical uh, conference 
um, the year before last, and it was really great. We had about 12 states represented, and almost 100 people, and it's a start. So this is what Matula would want us to do to, to continue that. So on this Saturday, August 26th, from 12 to 2 p.m., Operation Power will be honoring him and memorializing him. And one of the guests will be his son, Talib Shakur. Looks just like him. When he came in my office, I was like, oh, my God. I thought Matula was freed, and he got came to my office. He looks just like him and is continuing his father's work. And then Sekou Odinga, who was a, a longstanding member of the Black Liberation Army, he was a political prisoner himself, spent 40 years, and he's out. And he'll be a special guest. We'll show some video tapes of um Matulu, and I'm going to give my account of some of the things that happened. Talib told me that when Matulu, during his last days, he was incarcerated and he had to go to the um, uh, hospital, and they wanted to make sure all of his mental faculties were in place. So they asked him things like, "What's your name? You know, who, who's these? Who's who's your son?" And he was answering them, and then they said to him. Who is the president of the United States? And he said, this is when I knew he was all right. He said, Charles Barron. So that means that he was messing with their heads, and that means his head was clear enough for him to manipulate. So I'm very honored to say that we'll be doing that. The ID number is 830-4228-0488, and the passcode is 834 one two that's id eight three oh four two two eight oh four eight eight and the passcode is eight three four seven one two and if you want to dial in you can dial in at nine two nine two oh five six oh nine nine and for further info you can call three four seven five eight three Five nine two five. I know that's a lot of numbers, but I hope you can remember some of them. All right, we'll get, let you get them before you leave. But right now, uh, what is it? Fourteen away from the top of the hour. Brother Carlos in Waldorf has a question for you. He's on line one. Brother Carlos, good morning. You're on with Charles Barron. Uh, good morning, and thank you very much for taking my call. I have a thousand one questions, but I, would, I just want to ask uh, Brother Barron um, when Cornell West says that he. Is going to is running to dismantle the American Empire. In light of our heinous history, with our political our leaders being killed, do you think that is even possible, or is he putting himself in jeopardy by making that statement? And, and I did want to ask you one other question, but Carl, I don't know. I'll, I'll defer to you for that. Well, you know, first of all, Dr. Cornell West, we've known over the years. And on September 9th, uh, we, Operation Power, are going to have him as a guest, a conversation with presidential candidate Cornell West. And uh, we'll be coming back on Carl's program, I hope, to uh, um, go over that one. But nobody should be any leader that thinks any form of our oppression or oppressors is permanent is not fit to lead us. It's been a long time. But all of it is temporary. We will win. But this empire must be dismantled. And over the years, over the centuries, uh, most of the revolutions I studied 
people at the time that the revolutionary process was taking place thought that the, the, the oppressor was invincible. I'm sure that people on the plantation thought plantation slavery was forever. And when the Harriet Tubman said, let's run away, they said, get out of here. I'm not going nowhere. When Nat Turner said, let's take slay our slaveholders, they said no, and they thought they were too powerful. But plantation slavery is gone. Yes, we went from the plantation to the penitentiary, but at least plantation slavery is gone. So no form of our oppression is permanent. It is temporary, and we have to inspire our people. We have to figure out how to organize to make it happen in our lifetime. I don't even want to pass it to the next generation. I'd like for us to be free in our lifetime. But, you know, the capitalist system, the colonial capitalist system, has a powerful military machine and an enormous economic capitalistic um, control over the banking industries, the currencies, and all of that. But it is dying all over the world. People are rising up. So you just got to believe. And you got to say, even if you don't believe it, you got to fight like you do because we have nothing else to do but die if we don't. So, yes, we got to dismantle this empire. We got to call out these black misleaders, these black colonial puppets of the capitalist system that make it appear as progress, these civil rights leaders that march on Washington every year and come back with nothing but photo ops. When Dr. King died in his last year, it wasn't a march on Washington. It was a poor people's campaign, insurrection city, to stay there until you get reparations, stay there till you get money for poverty, and stay there. It was not a march on Washington to give more speeches and, and count how many years that you've been marching after King. If you want to be like King, then be a revolutionary and socialist, because that's how he died. When he told that Martin Luther King or he told his friend uh, Harry Belafonte that he was perhaps integrating into a burning house in 1967, that burning house was colonial capitalism, and he said we need to move toward socialism. But back to Matulu, this is the importance of Matulu Shakur, because that's what he's saying. Matulu Shakur is saying we have to be a nation within a nation, and then the host nation must be transformed from a capitalist system to a socialist system. And the liberation of Africa is central and key to the liberation of African people in the diaspora. All right. Uh, can you make it quick for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah real, real quick. Uh, if you were mayor of New York, what would you do to uh, uh, stop the migrant, the inflow, to, inflow of migrants being sent in from Texas and, and other states into New York. Uh, Eric A Adams seems to be uh, powerless to do anything. Do you have any alternate solution? And I'll take the answer. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank if you can give it to us in 60 seconds, uh, Charles, I'd appreciate it. Okay, first of all, it's a federal issue. I would take the feds to court on that level. Secondly, for the migrants that do come, I would definitely take care of the African migrants, the Caribbean migrants who are being ignored, but also there's a lot of people already poor and in homeless shelters. You can't ignore them. They've been there for decades. I would make every developer that's building affordable housing in New York City, I would force them, before they get any free money from the city, subsidy, that 30 to 40% have to be for the unhoused 
the homeless. And when those homeless are taken care of that are already in our communities, then the ones coming in can take their place in those shelters until they can be transferred into better places. In upstate, they have plenty of land, but these racist whites don't want them up there. So the solution is, number one, get our people that have been in these shelters for a long time out, and you'll have more space. Number two, America's imperialist foreign policy has to be dealt with. People are coming from Haiti. People are coming from Mexico. People coming from Venezuela and Nicaragua because of American imperialism in their right. countries. They would love to stay there. Thank you, Carl. Charles, yeah, before you go, real quick, phone number. Just give the phone number. 347-583-5925. That's 347-583-5925, August 16th, this Saturday, from 12 to 2, we honor Dr. Matula Shakur, the consummate revolutionary. All right. Thank you, Charles Barron. Thank you for sharing the information with us. Folks, we've got to go. We're out of here. We're done for the day. Stay strong. Stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.